That's right. This is Hardcore Podcast, Episode 2. Um, this should have came out Friday morning, and I actually am re-recording this entire intro just to explain the situation. When I recorded this interview with Sonny, this was actually the first podcast in full length that I recorded, and there were some mistakes made in the recording process and because I'm still so new at this I assumed oh I can fix this in the mix this will be no problem and three days out from wanting to have it up and loaded I sent it over to a friend who doesn't even want his name on it because he was like yo this sounds like shit I don't even know what was going on and I was actually in the middle of recording another episode where I found out the problem was I was recording so close to uh, HVAC intake that I had all that background noise. So going into the editing process, knowing that the reviews from the first episode were that the quality of the sound was great, everybody liked it, and I know that once again we've got another really long episode. I didn't want a really shitty sound to annoy you so you don't even want to listen to it because it's already a hard listen as it is so long. So since Thursday night, I've been scrambling my brain and trying to figure out a way to make it sound better. And what's interesting is that in this podcast that you're going to listen to, my friend and yours, Sonny Singh from Hate Five Six basically goes through the process of him learning how to do things on his own. And he said, you know, it's a lot of trial and error. And, you know, you can look things up, but you really just got to try out and see what works. And this is a great application of that. In the weeks that follow, the quality of the recordings are a thousand times better, as I've learned a lot about how to position the mic and do things differently than I did this very first time. And it was because I didn't want to let you guys down that I didn't scrap the whole thing altogether. Um, we will be releasing weekly, and Missing Friday was just because there was no way I could put this out knowing how bad it sounded. Still not 100% happy with the quality, but the story is amazing, and Sonny goes throughout so many different aspects of what he's doing, and projects that he has coming out that this is such a total awesome listen that I didn't want to abandon ship and leave you guys without a podcast for this week. So my apologies for being late on Friday and let's just start this fucking thing. Thank you once again for checking in with us. There was never a question of if only a question of when I was going to 
speak to Sonny and get his story and methodologies on this podcast. Although Hate Five Six and Sonny are well known in the entire hardcore community, there are so many aspects to him, whether it's his background that goes beyond just holding up a camera to his insightful look at how to document and how to preserve and also just some of the innovations and the drive from him to go beyond an easy streak of just being a well-paid computer scientist to someone who travels the country and the world holding a camera over his head for untold hours to document our culture. I have benefited from his friendship and from the symbiotic relationship that Hey 56 shares with This Is Hardcore since 2009. But I've also been one of the few people who really sees the inner workings and the gears turning when he starts going off and talking. And having spent untold hours on the phone with him and him going over the different details, this one special, and I hope you stick around and listen to the whole thing. So Sonny... Let's start this off with really the most pertinent thing, because we already know that you were involved in music and you were getting excited about it. What what was your very first camera that you actually purchased? Yeah, so it must have been 99 or, yeah, probably around 99. I was still in middle school and I was, that's when I was beginning to like really fall in love with music. I mean, I, I discovered music at an earlier age, thanks to my older brother, but it was middle school where I was starting to like discover stuff on my own. And um, a lot of my friends were beginning to start bands and things like that. And I was starting to ride BMX and just like skateboarding, you know, filming is a big part of BMX as well. So I had, I had from the start of becoming involved in like heavier music had already like an affinity towards videography. And at the time it was just like filming like BMX stuff and also had an appreciation for just live recordings in general. Cause like, that's how I was discovering uh, music at the time I was downloading like live recordings off of, um, you know, SoulSeek, MIRC, um, Kazaa, Kaza, uh, stuff like that. And also even just trading VHS bootlegs of shows that were recorded at like the spectrum or at JC Dobbs, things like that in Philly. Um, so I had, really developed an appreciation for just live music through those those channels um and so fast forward to about 2000 2001 i was starting high school and like i said my friends were starting to play shows they're 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 small like high school bands were playing local shows and i wanted to get involved in somehow uh in the local scene and i thought to myself like well you know i have this camera that i'm using to film like bmx and i I already know that I like the idea of preserving and recording live, live, live music. Uh, so let me just start filming my friends' bands playing these shows. And at the time, I didn't really have a sense of what I was going to do with the recordings. Because um, you have to remember, this is pre-YouTube by like six years, seven years. So uh, in my head, I thought, uh, I actually tried, you know, I was at the time learning. My, my dad bought me a, a book on how to write HTML. So I, was, I, I built like my first basic website and I what year was that, that in? That must've been 2000 to yeah. 99 or 
99 or 2000. So my dad got me this HTML book and I was like coding some stuff. And I remember thinking to myself, man, there's got to be a way to like play a video through a browser. <laughs> and so I tried, I tried like coding something and it was just simply as, it was as simple as just embedding like the actual video file on the website. And like, it worked and I was like, oh, this could actually like, I could actually like host a video this way. But it, in, in hindsight, that's not the way to do it. Um, it would not be as efficient as doing something like hosting it on like a streaming site like YouTube. Um, but I was starting to think about, okay, you know, I have a recording. How can I, how can I disseminate this out to like an, a digital audience? Um, so I was like playing with that idea. And then I was playing with the idea of um, having DVDs pressed at a local plant. Uh, at a, of like these shows that I was filming and just selling them to like kids in high school. And my dad, uh, he was like, you're an idiot. No one wants to buy a DVD of a ska band playing in a basement to like high school kids. So in high, I mean, he was right. Like that was not a good idea. And I'm glad I didn't go down that route because at the time, like manufacturing, a D, manufacturing a DVD was thousands of dollars. And I was, were you looking at disc makers? Yeah. Yeah, no, I was looking at disc makers and I was willing to drop like thousands of dollars. I mean, you know, I had I was working at a van skate park, so I had I had some income. So I was like willing to drop my income on having DVDs made. And luckily I didn't. Luckily my dad talked me out of it. But anyway, so I was filming these shows 2000 until like 2003 and um, I was filming them to tape and I and I, I had no way of sharing the footage or doing do anything with it. So I just sat on the tapes for years. And so fast forward to like 2006, I was in college at this point um, and I had saved up a little bit more money to buy a higher end camera. So uh, high def, like 1080p cameras were just becoming like available to people. And so a lot of professional videographers were selling their um, standard def cameras, their professional standard def cameras at like a huge discount. So I went on eBay and I got this Canon GL2, which was a, uh, at the, you know, at the time, well, before HD, that was like one of the standards that people used because it was like using skate videos, using a lot of just like uh, commercial work and things like that. So I got that for pretty cheap, um, again, because like professionals were moving towards high def and they were just basically selling their, their, their old gear for, for pennies on the dollar. So I picked that up and I remember... I think it was, I can look up the date, but I think it was like January 06. I went to the church and I filmed, um, no, was that, this is probably your show. It was Have Heart, Damnation. No, no, no. Um, that one wasn't Dana mine. Black. Was that 2008? When was that? Uh, that wasn't my show. Yeah. No, so I, luckily I have everything documented here. So it was January 6, 2008. It was Have Heart, Hope Con. Those are the only two that I filmed because I think I got there a little late. Yeah. That was an Andy Nelson show through R5 Productions at the okay. church. Um, so I filmed that, and actually the, the 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 big show that I filmed before that with my GL2 was the Floor Punch reunion, October 28th, 2007 at the church. Yeah, that was a so benefit have, for Robbie Ritchie's mother who was dealing with cancer. That was an awesome show. Yeah, so that was the first, I think the first like big show that I filmed with my GL2, and um, yeah, that's that that would that would have been it. Maybe. Maybe something, maybe some small stuff before that, but that was the first big one. And I remember I was standing on stage right. Typically at the church, I love standing stage right. So for some reason, that's like my little home spot. Um, and I just remember it was 
crowded and hot. And that was my first, one of the first times I realized how hot the church gets because there's like no ventilation, even, even in like the winter. I mean, that was, that yeah, was, the winter will sneak up on you in that basement, man. Cause it's cold outside, but you get in, it kicks in quick. Yeah. And that was end of October. So it was, I mean, I don't remember what the weather was like that, that day, especially, you know, 2007, but I'm sure it wasn't like, like a, like a hot day. It no, was, it was a, definitely bombing yeah, in the basement. It was still, it, being down in the basement was uh, not pleasant, but it's funny. Like as unpleasant as that basement is, I would rather be in that basement than anywhere else right now, <laughs> especially all things considered. Like that is the one spot that I miss just a room full of my friends and not just friends, but just even lately with shows. I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but like lately before this pandemic, I was seeing a lot of new faces at shows in Philly. Like, a lot of people I don't recognize, which is great. A lot of young kids. And so I miss that. I miss going to a show and just seeing like familiar and new faces and just seeing a band that I love. So, uh, but yeah, that was 2007. And then pretty much like um, fall of 2008 is when I officially launched hate56.com. And that's when I really began to like do it a bit more regularly. What's interesting and a lot of people don't know about you is that you are not a videographer major but they were actually a computer scientist and you had to learn all this stuff on your own. Yeah. I've never, I've never studied film. I've never taken any classes in video. I was a math major in college. Um, and later I, I went to grad school for computer science. So my background is completely, um, divorced from anything related to video, but like through the years I've been able to integrate like my technical training and my technical background with, like streamlining and improving everything that I do with hate six. So it took a lot, it took many years, but I finally like think th- things have come full circle and I've become this like integrated person because before I was keeping my like tech life separate from my love for filming hardcore shows. But now I've finally, after chipping away at it for so long, I finally found a way to like combine it and become this holistic person that's able to like, you know, film shows, but then also use technology to make the whole pipeline more efficient than ever before. Another lesser known fact about you is despite your computer science major and the money that you could have raked in working for any number of weapons companies or something, you turned your back on that and maintained a focus in the punk hardcore world with Hey 56 and took lesser paying jobs so you could still stay around and shoot as many shows as possible. And I think a lot of people need to hear the story about you in college and about the way that you kind of turned away from that world where you could have been easily raking in the big money. Yeah. I'm well, to be clear, I actually did unfortunately work for weapons manufacturer. So it was after uh, grad school. I, I went up to, uh, I got, I got uh, hired by this company called BBN technologies in Cambridge, mass. Uh, BBN is actually known for, I guess they they did the acoustic analysis, I think, you know, on the, um, some acoustic analysis to triangulate where the shooter was lo- possibly located deferring the JFK assassination. So they do a lot of just like various kinds of signal processing. And so um, in grad school, I studied um, an area of machine learning. Uh, machine learning is a type of artificial intelligence, but I specifically focused on an area called natural language processing, which is essentially uh, building algorithms and training computers to process and understand human language um, in text form and to make inference on that and to, you know, uh, glean 
uh, information and knowledge from text. So um, unfortunately in the tech world, a lot of the work is centered on defense. So the defense, the defense industry and military industrial complex, they suck up a lot of people in the tech world. Um, and if you're not going into that space, then you're going to uh, Facebook and Google, which are essentially like building spyware <laughs> in, in many ways. So when you're working in tech, it's very, very difficult to do anything that is um, going to keep your conscience clean if you're someone who is thinking about like the impact that your work has on, on society as a whole. So I was actually in that world for a while. Um, and, you know, I enjoyed the work from a theoretical, theoretical perspective, just the stuff that I was working on theoretically was very interesting to me, but the application of it was constantly well, the far as nature and like, the impact on other people. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's not the way you're going to roll. Yeah, either either not for the good or it would be something that's, you know, funded by DARPA and I don't know. Well, I, I don't know if it's ever going to be used. I, one, I don't know if it's going to be used for uh, a nefarious purpose, but then two, it's a DARPA project and a lot of DARPA projects don't ever actually like leave the research table. So I was also facing this this conundrum where it's like spending all this time doing this work, not knowing if it's going to be used for good or bad, but also not knowing if it's going to be used at all. And I was like, what's, what's the point of this? If like, I'm just sitting here doing this and it's fun, but at that point it's just like inter it's intellectual masturbation. You know, it's like I could be doing so much more with my time that has a measure, like a far more measurable impact. You know what I mean? So um, the NSA tried recruiting me multiple times and I, I, I turned them down. Wait, wait, wait. I mean, I've known you a long time. We've talked a lot about this kind of stuff. Did they just show up and flip a badge and tell you, hey, we want you in like Men in Black? Like, you got to give me the story on this. No. So I, I had worked for, um, I had a summer internship. And basically, I think so, some people from NSA were also involved in that internship as well. Uh, so basically, the internship was a summer. It was a, I actually did it for two summers in um, 2010 and 11. And actually, there's a really funny story about 2011, and I'll tell you in a little bit. Um, but 2010 and 11, basically, they brought researchers in from various universities, various um, uh, companies in industry, and various people working in defense contracting, and basically put us all in a room, and we worked on various problems that summer. And so um, basically, you know, I was one of the students that was brought in, and, you know, uh, I took a tour of the NSA. Uh, well, you know, we, we, did, we, did, we had like a field trip day where we took a, we took a trip at, to NSA and like uh, very, very, very fascinating place. Like you roll up to Fort Meade and there's people outside, you know, holding assault rifles, guarding it. And they, 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 they ask everyone for their ID, obviously, because it's a military base or whatever. Uh, I don't know if it's technically, it's, it's some sort of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a protected base because obviously that's where a lot of the like intelligence, intelligence is gathered. Um, but it's a very, it's a very dystopian environment. Like you go in there, I remember walking through the cafeteria and there were signs that they had, they had sort of like cartoon posters all throughout the cafeteria of like people sitting, eating lunch together. And they would have, you know, quote bubbles above their head being like, make sure you don't talk about what you're working on. And, but you know, done in a, like a little bit more of a humorous way. So everywhere you looked, in the NSA cafeteria were reminders that you should not talk about what you're doing to anyone, not even your, not even the people sitting with you at lunch, because they might not be 
you know, they might not have the, the clearance to know what you're working on. So there's, there's this level of compartment, compartmentalization of knowledge that goes on. And so whenever people are like, you know, the government's too incompetent to like carry out all these things, whether, you know, whatever it is, you have to realize that there's a constant level of compartmentalization of knowledge and indoctrination, indoctrination in the various sectors of the government where they're actually very effective at making sure certain people don't talk to other people. Because if your job is to sit there and chip away at this one algorithm and just to get the algorithm to reach a certain level of performance, like you don't know, you, you don't always know what the next algorithm in the pipeline is doing with your output. Because I could be working on this one thing that is just, you know, so like I said, I was working on, you know, extracting information from text. And so my specific role might be like, you know, my task might be to improve the algorithm ju that just extracts, that just extracts people's names from a document. And that's all I'm doing. I'm just, I'm, I'm building the algorithm that is identifying people's names. Or for example, if, if, um, if the document is something like, um, you know, Joe booked, this is hardcore and you know Joe booked Gorilla Biscuits for this is hardcore 2017 or whatever and the next sentence says um, they drew a crowd of 3,000 people so if that's the sentence in this document you know if those are the two sentences in the document the question is in the second sentence when it says they drew 3,000 people like if I were to ask you who does they represent who would you say Yeah, it's, it's more likely Gorilla Biscuits, but a computer doesn't know that. The, com the computer, when it reads the first sentence, it identifies Joe Hardcore as like what they call a named entity. So Joe, Hard Joe Hardcore is a named entity, and Gorilla Biscuits are also a named entity. But then you have this thing called co-reference resolution, where in the second sentence, they is an unnamed entity, but the computer doesn't know, does they map to... Does that link back to Joe or does that link back to Gorilla Biscuits? So that's a whole separate problem within like artificial intelligence. Is how do you get the computer to actually know in like a document what's actually being referred to? Because, you know, a human, obviously, like like you answered, it, it, they know that they, re they, they refer to Gorilla Biscuits. But like being able to link they to GB and not to you could be the could be like a matter not i don't say life and death but that could be the matter of like your algorithm being on the nose correct or missing the mark completely so when you're working in these environments where your job is to just improve the performance of the co-reference resolution by like a couple percentage points and that's all you're doing you're not even thinking about and you're not even privy to like what happens after that? So once this component works to like a good enough accuracy and I pass it off to the next guy, I don't always know what the next guy's doing with that. You know what I mean? So when you're working in defense, that's the culture of that environment is like your job is to work on whatever it is that you're tasked with and you are not allowed to talk about anything else outside of that. So that's what really sketched me out. You know what I mean? So at this stage... You've been shooting a lot. I mean, a couple of this is hardcores, and it became, you know, beyond just a hobby and became more of a passion. Do you think that hardcore and hate five six kind of weighed in and kept you from 
uh, fall into the dark side and losing your descent or inside of you was still a descent whether or not you were as involved as you were with hardcore I think the descent would have been there because I was like I, said, I grew up listening to like political music in middle school and high school and so I had already come into that space like I was already dealing with this like spiritual struggle because coming out of coming out of grad school I was like I already know that I detest the defense world you know because all they're doing is they're building spot they're if they're not building spy tools they're building weapons to blow up brown people you know in in like a middle eastern country so I already known that like I'm I'm compromising myself by doing this but like I wanted to work in tech because that's what my intellectual interest was in and I had no other option so I tried to stomach it, and a lot of people work, and I'm not trying to indict everyone who works in tech, because a lot of people work in tech, they don't agree with what's going on, but I guess everyone has to pick and choose their battles, and some of them, you know, and, and, I, and again, like, I did it for a while, where I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work in this space, but I'm going to, outside of work, do something that's bigger than me, you know, I'm going to use my resources to, like, build a build a, a project that helps people find music or you know i donated and i still donate a lot of money to like organizations so i was definitely in a position to help people but it came at a cost and so i was doing that for a couple of years and then finally i was like you know i just i just can't do it anymore but uh going back a little bit so the summer of 2011 i was still working at you know i was working at one of these summer programs and i worked on an unclassified project and i had to present the research at the end of the summer basically we had to present the projects that we worked on and i had to give a project a uh, presentation at the nsa for what i was working on and um it incidentally was the same the 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 presentation day was, was i think uh the same day as the pre-show for this is hardcore and anyone who knows me knows that i hate missing even one opening band of a show if i miss an opening band of a show i'm like crushed and devastated for the rest of the day let alone a fest was that was that 2011 that was 11 that was 11 wow that was also the only pre-show we ever did in the unitarian church man that was a really hot one too dude that was hot and bomb as well so yo cold world underdog that was sick that was a good one and so i remember i was like fuck i gotta find a way to get out of this presentation uh, so I can film the show and I was like I can't use the excuse that like I'm gonna go film like a band you know that's not gonna fucking fly in <laughs> in the like in the in the tech world so I came up with this excuse that oh you know I'm, I'm moving that day and my landlord needs me out and so I was I was in like Maryland right that's where uh, the NSA is or like Fort Meade is and so I was like well I gotta go back to Philly you know in the morning to move out because my, my my landlord's like He's going to take me to court. I came up with this elaborate excuse basically to get me out of presenting my work that day. And I somehow convinced a professor who was there who was working that summer. I was like, hey, if I give you my notes and give you like a, um, a rough um, presentation, can you present my work for me? And he was like, yeah, I don't see why not. <laughs> so I don't want to name him. Um, and I doubt he'll ever hear this, but... Uh, thank you so much for falling for that because I got out of presenting that and I was able to make it back home in time. And I, I rushed home. I don't, I don't remember how it happened, but I rushed home and I was able to make it to church and I did not miss a band at that fest. So 
There you go. So anytime anyone yeah, questions I mean, the to there ain't nobody I literally, uh, lying I lied, to the NSA. <laughs> I lied to the NSA, and not just the not the NSA, but like the top brass, the NSA were yeah, some going big to ass, be uh, general with like a whole shoulder full of badges. <laughs> no, no, for for real, like the 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 top brass at the NSA were going to be sitting in at that um, presentation. Yeah, so you're like at me, that like, big table like Doctor Strangelove. Sitting yeah, around with so, like twenty chairs and everyone's just staring right at you. Yeah. So I mean, and, and again, it was it was like there was a whole other people. There was a whole group of other people presenting. It wasn't just me. So I was like one small bit of it, but still, like I literally like forfeited my opportunity to present some research that I worked on in front of like top people to go film some fucking hardcore bands. At this is hardcore two thousand eleven. So, uh, yeah, that's the kind of shit that I like to do. Yeah, way before you started uh, shooting hardcore shows, you were involved in BMX, right? So was like that how you got your start with the whole shooting and editing process? Yeah, I had already like taught myself some of the basics at that point. Now, there's no YouTube and obviously you just can't Google from something in your pocket at that point. So were you going to the library and looking up books? Like how did you figure out all this stuff? That was all trial and error, and that's something that I still do today. I, I'm still learning a lot by trial and error. And like a, a lot of people ask me lately, like coming to me for tips, like oh, how do I do this or how do I, how do I get? I'm at point A. How do we get to point, sorry point B? And I tell them that like you got You just gotta as as mundane and as like trivial as it sounds. Like you just have to try it. Come up with some game plan. It could be the most basic approach possible, and just try it you're probably going to fail or it's probably going to be inefficient as fuck, but you have to try some idea. And once you try that, you're going to see what does and doesn't work. And it's like a feedback loop. And once you figure out what doesn't work, you can then like restart the process and change what didn't work. And it's, it's, it's about, it's about iterating on processes and like figuring out what failed, what wasn't, what wasn't um, the right approach and tweaking it a little bit and then going back to the start and trying it again and just doing that process over and over and over again. And that's where people get stuck because they, they think that if they fail the first time that they're not going to like ever succeed or they get, they, they get frustrated or they give up after failing a, a couple times. And that's, that's human nature. But I think like, like tying back to my like, experience as like a math major in college and computer science grad school student like th that trained me to like you fail a lot when you're working in anything technical like these are hard concepts to deal with and you're constantly like in a mathematical proof like you're starting out with like the basics like you're you have this massive problem and you have to decompose that problem into smaller bits and you have to you have to solve each bit, but each time you solve a bit, that opens the door to begin solving the next bit in the sequence. And by the end, you have this entire sequence of logical steps that arrives at the proof that you need to like to make the, the the conclusion of your hypothesis or or the theorem, whatever it is that you're trying to prove. So I feel like my experience going through that like that crucible or that gauntlet of trying and failing proofs and chipping away at technical problems really molded me to figure out how to do the things that I need to do to run hate by six. And so, um, I think like the big part of that is learning how to decompose 
a problem into smaller bits. Because when I'm trying something new, if I'm trying to build like, you know, right now I'm building like these mechanical camera devices that can get me some crazy camera angles. And like, I have no fucking training in like mechanical engineering or manufacturing, but I've, I'm doing a lot of this trial and error. Like I'm, 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 I'm building a component. It's, it, it fails, but then I decompose it into like a smaller problem and think about, okay, this, this big thing isn't working, but let me focus on this one small piece. Let me get this one small piece working perfectly. And then I can move on to the next thing. So it's all about chipping away at a larger problem into smaller chunks and chunks that you can, that you know, you can digest and, once you encounter a chunk that you can't digest, then you either need to like ask someone who knows what they're doing and like pick their brain, or you need to just like read or watch a bunch of YouTube videos until you're able to like revisit that, that piece that you weren't able to put a dent in. And then you come back to it with some more knowledge that you've gained through some other channel and then just try chipping it away even further. So. That's kind of what I, that's the approach that I've always had with 8.5.6. And that's how I learned how to do video editing. And that's how I learned how to like build the site out into what it is today. And that's how I learned how to like build a lot of the algorithms that power the site and everything in between. You know, we're talking about this and it comes to mind that we sat there for an entire afternoon shooting the already dead Wisdom of Chains video in Fishtown. And I watched you try and try and try to nail a move and then pin them moves together. And do you think like the kinetic energy and the way that you figured out moves is correlated back to how you figure out the processes for your shooting and editing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think like growing up, I spent hours in a parking lot by myself trying these fucking bike tricks over and over again. Because that's like just like skating. BMX, is so it's a solitary thing. It's not like baseball where it's a team event. I mean, obviously, baseball, you have to have some individual skill, but you're part of a team, and the team has to work together cohesively. But with BMX and skateboarding, you're on your own. Like, you can get some tips from other people, but you have to put the work in by yourself in a parking lot for hours on end by yourself in order to make that incremental progress. So I think that, you know, just like I was saying, my training as a mathematician, computer scientist, um, like condition me to to break apart problems. I think on by the by, on the, uh, by the same token, being a BMX rider also conditioned me in the same way. So I think that like what hate five six is hate five six only exists in its current form because of who I am as a person, because of the choices that I made, and because of the things that I gravitated to. I really truly believe that Hey Five Six is a confluence of all of the things that I have been interested in growing up my entire life. Well, that's a huge thing that a lot of us fall into over the years and the decades we're on and something you did 10, 15 years ago can be reapplied to something you're doing now. And between BMX, the early ska shows, then with the computer science major, all this is your foundation for what is Hey Five Six. On top of that, dust yourself up, get yourself up, get back on the bike and try it again attitude. Now, when you were hitting obstacles with shooting shows, were there people that you were gleaning information from, asking for tips, or people that could open some doors for you? And who are those people that you were seeking out? 
Yeah, so I remember I went to This Is Hardcore 2008, but I went with um, my, my, my partner at the time and a couple friends, and we went on a whim. Like, we were out swimming. At, we were at a swimming hole one day, and we were just like, oh, let's go. This is Hardcore is happening. Like, let's just go. And we showed up, and I forget what, what Tony Urba band was playing, but he was swinging a chain around. Oh, that would have been Cheap Tragedies. Um, it was cheap. Yeah, I walk in, he's swinging a Yeah, gun. that crazy motherfucker stabbed himself in the face with a bottle yeah. of that set. I walk in, and that motherfucker is, like, swinging a chain around, and I was like, damn, this is really cool. And honestly, I sat there, and, you know, I was watching the bands from the back, and I spent more time watching Floating Boy Media. Floating Boy Media, as you yeah, know. Yeah, my boy Seth. Seth. Yeah, they were the ones who were filming the fest at the point, and they were doing the annual DVDs. And so they had a film crew. Like, they had multiple people Yeah, let me stop you for filming. a minute. That and was the year a- that they had the whole full crew because they partnered up with Yoji, and they were trying to pop off a DVD for that year. Yeah, and they had someone by the soundboard at front of house, and he was cutting the angles together. So he had, like, a whole switchboard. And I had never seen anything like that in person. I was still filming small shows with my Canon GL2, like this one camera. And I was like, I walked in, I was like, damn, this is a whole production crew. And they're like doing this shit on the fly. I was like, yeah, I want to do that one day. You know, people, I'm sure there are people at the fest who are like, man, I want to be on stage one day with my man. I was the guy like, damn, I want to be the video crew. I want to be the guy who's like filming this shit and producing something from it. And so I remember I went home that day and I was like, man, I got to do that one day. And um, I remember I was on Centerfuse at the time. My uh, my my user finished Centerfuse for anyone's listening is a local was a local Philly message board. Um, my username was Flatsphere because Flatsphere. Wow! Flat, <laughs> oh my god! Flatsphere was the name of a Flatland BMX DVD, and I thought it sounded cool because it also sounds like something mathematical, like a flat sphere. Like a, it sounds like a very abstract and mathematical concept. So I was gravitated to that. So that was my username, and so I remember. Like, I had filmed a couple shows under my belt at that point, and I, I don't know how I had heard. I had heard at some point that Floating Boy wasn't filming. Maybe they announced that they were um, calling it quits, or maybe you posted something that, like, someone needed to shoot it. But I remember I remember sending you a, a private message. I was like, hey, like, I filmed a couple of your small shows. I'm a local videographer. Like, I'd love to come film this is hardcore. And you, you gave me the opportunity. You were like, yeah, absolutely. Just come by at this time. We'll get you set up with a pass, and... We'll go from there. Like you asked no questions. You just knew that I was a local kid who had gone to a couple shows, had filmed a little bit, and you gave me the opportunity to do that. So uh, I don't think I would be doing what I'm doing if you had not opened that door. And like, um, you know, not to blow smoke up your ass, but like over the years, you've been, you've always been the one person that I go to whenever I need like a connection. Because there's always, I mean, now that I've been doing this for like many years that, you know, a lot of promoters and bands know me, but starting out, like when if a band didn't know me or a promoter in New York, if a, if a New York hardcore promoter didn't know me, I would turn to you and you would make that connection to like open the door and tell them that like, you know, I was cool to work with and I would get this shit done and do it at a high level of production quality. And so, um, yeah, people like you and, and, and other people that were willing to vouch for me, you know, I think. You know, a lot of people when they when a lot of people turn to me saying like, "How can I do what you're doing?" or "How can I, how can I be a successful successful photographer who takes pictures of of major bands or do what it do whatever it is in the scene um, at a high level?" I tell them like, "You you have to start out locally, and you have to build relationships locally with your local bands, your local scene, 
And from there, you can then start building relationships with touring bands as they come through playing those same venues for those same promoters. And so it's all about networking and building bridges and learning how to navigate that. And so I really feel like having done, you know, I spent a lot of, and I, you know, I mean, obviously there's no shows happening now, but like I spent a lot of time just filming local shows and local shows in the tri-state area. And, you know, as big touring bands would come through, you know, I would get in, I would, I would get into the show with the opening band and I'd film the touring band and like the touring band would then become acquainted with me that way. And so you don't, none of this stuff happens overnight. And I think a lot of people want overnight success or overnight notoriety or whatever it is. But again, going back to what I said before, you have to chip away at these things. If your goal is to get to some level, like my goal was never to get to some level. My goal was just to keep doing it and iterating and improving my production quality. And like, you know, over time you're able to do bigger and better things. And so, yeah, it's always, you're, you can only get so far by yourself. And at some point you're going to have to rely on other people opening the door or vouching for you or whatever it is in order for you to like break through that resistance. Cause you're always going to meet resistance. Resistance is always the thing that's keeping you from getting to the next level, whether it's like not having the technical, technical skills to do it or whether it's, not having the, the right um, credentials to get access to the stage that you want to shoot or whether it's your own mental like um, imposter syndrome telling you you're not good enough to do something. There's always some resistance hanging over you that's preventing you from getting to that next level. So it's always about like pushing, like pushing little by little to figure out what it is that's holding you back. And then finding a way to like fucking pierce through it. And then once you're able to pierce like a small hole, then you can work your way through it and fucking rip through the whole thing. And so um, I think that the only reason that I've been able to grow Hate by Six is because I've been able to identify like, okay, I've reached, I've reached this point on my own or teaching myself this thing. I need to get to this next level. Who do I need to hit up? I need to hit up Joe. Joe knows all these promoters out West or in New York city that can get me to the shoot the show or whatever. Like now, now I'm also shooting shows with uh, doing like live streams with the, with Will Yip and Will Yip has access to like, Will Yip is a you know big name producer in like, like the indie indie world. And, I mean, he, he works with hardcore bands too, but he has a whole connection to, you know, a world of bands that I might not have direct access to. So, you know, he and I are partnering up and he's opening doors for me in that space and so, you know, and, and, that, and that's a mutual thing, too. Like, he's going to be able to, like, you know, build out his vision for having live stream performances during COVID with my help. So it's always about not just identifying, like, who can help you and leeching off that person. It needs to be, like, a symbiotic relationship. So I think you saw me as someone who was eager and willing to, like, document the scene. But you also realize that having me film in a way that was different from Floating Boy. And this isn't to knock Floating Boy because I would not be doing what I'm doing if it weren't for, for Floating Boy and anyone else who filmed shows before me. But the model at that point was to film a fest and to put out a DVD of like maybe one or two songs per band. And that was it. But I was coming at it from a purely archival model where I was like, I want to film everything and make all of it available because I really believe in archiving everything start to finish. Like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a purist by nature and a complete like I believe in completion and like uh, you know having things captured in their totality 
And so I was coming at it with a model like, you know, I'm going to film this, but I don't want to put out a DVD because one, my dad told me that DVDs are <laughs> ineffective. <laughs> yeah, we're back, we're back to the dad story, man. Oh, yeah. And always back to dad because dad, dad's going to come up later in this. But um, I, I knew that DVDs were they were they were an ineffective model, you know, because at that time, digital video was becoming accessible. Like YouTube is becoming more of a thing. People were starting to consume video like on the web and less through watching DVDs. So I came to you saying, hey, I want to film everything. Literally, I want to film every band, every song from every band, and I want to post all of it. I don't want to cut any, I don't want to leave anything on the cutting room, cutting room floor. And I think you realized that for you, that would have given the fest 24 seven coverage, 365. Like that would give like the, your fest coverage every day of the year, because as long as those sets were available online, anyone in the world at any time during the day, during the entire year could look up that, sh that band's performance from that year's fest and watch it and that would get them stoked to maybe come out the next year or that would like maybe a band would see it and the band would, like the band would be like damn that that you know those bands are getting crazy reactions we should try playing the fest next year so i think you realized that like the relationship was like there was a mutual benefit here i would get my ability i would be able to like start filming shows at a bigger scale and start archiving at a higher quality at a and a, at a much more level of completeness and for you you're going to get a new type of like a new level of coverage for your fest and i think you were one of the first people to see that because now now every fest under the sun has someone filming you know every set and putting it up on youtube but at the time in like 2008 2009 like not many people were doing it you know i mean and and again people were like there was a guy named Pablo who ran a site called fear.com. He was filming shows and put, putting stuff on his website. And like, he was ahead of the curve. Uh, there was a guy in Philly called Mike. He ran a, uh, his name was Mike Tyson <laughs> or, uh, and that's not a joke or at least he goes by Mike Tyson. I don't know if that was his actual last name, but he ran a site called eat tapes. Um, he filmed a lot of shows, uh, a lot of R five shows and probably it's a bunch of your shows. So I saw him early on and I wanted to emulate him, but really like, you know, I was one, I wasn't the first, but I was among the first people who were regularly putting live concert footage on YouTube to be accessible to people anywhere in the world at any time of the day. Yeah, I think if you would have said that last sentence to me when you had hit me up, hey, I want to make sure that I can make this accessible to all parts of the earth. I, I would have just thought you were absolutely crazy or a time traveler. But what I do know is that when you had asked to do this is the hardcore shootings, it, it was an easy yes for me. I'm not somebody who is ever looking for how do I make money off it. In fact, I, I look at anything that people are doing stuff auxiliary or parallel with this is hardcore, whether they're making t-shirts or a poster as long as the bands are okay with it and they're not upset and no one's being harmed, I'm good with it. I don't like to micromanage, you know, and anybody who works for This Is Hardcore will tell you. If someone says, hey, I have this idea, I'm, I just say, cool, okay, we'll go do that and uh, let me know how it works. Now, with you specifically, obviously I knew you from Centerpuse, the message board that we were all on at the time, and I'd seen you at some shows, but... I don't think that I could say with a straight face that I ever thought it would get to the point where I would be sitting in the back area of Union Transfer 
and some young kid from China who had seen videos from Hardcore would come all the way to Philadelphia to see the Youth of Today reunion. I mean, that was a way further step than I ever thought it would take, but anyone who's willing to shoot all of the bands and not just the cool ones is going to get my total support. And I believe the words of Richie Crutch from Wisdom and Chains apply here. High tide definitely raises all ships. And since the beginning of you pushing forward, you were never an elitist. You didn't care what the bands were. You know, you weren't, as you said earlier, you would be upset if you did miss the opening bands. When I know tons of people who are very well known for shooting uh, bands don't even get there until the last band or hang out with them all night and always shoot the last couple of songs. So you've always been community first and you've always put hardcore first and it's just incredible. And I didn't ask you that question so you would go ahead and say, hey, well, you gave me a big hand. I look at everything I do as, hey, if someone can bounce off of this and make things better, fuck it. Jump in, go grab something, give us all a hand. And, I mean, you've done that in spades. And I just appreciate that we had a hand in getting you started. And then in return, that you helped this hardcore grow and be seen as far as it has been. Yeah, yeah, this is this is definitely a community that grows together. I mean, for example, like I I've been filming Code Orange since they were Code Orange kids, you know, when they first started out. Yo, the kids. The kids, you know, and you know, they're a massive band now on Roadrunner and now that they've reached this platform, they they come back to me, you know, I've done two of those live streams for them during the pandemic and they don't have to. Like they have access to all these other resources through Roadrunner or whatever to bring on whoever they want, but they they're you know I, I respect them because they don't forget like where they came from or who helped them get there. And they make sure to come back to people like me, people like Max Moore who films their music videos. They go to Will Yip to record. Like when the community grows together, like you don't forget about the people who helped you. And as you grow, you're going to look back and be like, you know what? This person helped me out back then. And I see that they're still doing this and they, they're the, they're the, you know, even though I can go probably outsource this to someone else who's not from the same world, I'm going to go to this guy because I know he can get the shit done and he's, or they're on, we're all on the same wavelength. So yeah, Richie's right. You know, it's, it, the community grows together and like as, as you develop and, and, and improve and, and, and progress, you're not going to forget the people who are next to you along the way. So yeah, I, I agree with that totally. Looking into just how far you've taken the show videography, the editing, mixing in the live sound, how much of that do you think came from the background of computer science with how you built the websites, how you use the algorithms on social media, and how much of it was trial and error and looking at new ways to use social media to promote because it was still early on when you were really pushing the site and social media might have only had myspace at the time so i'd like to just hear your thoughts on the methodology and how much of it was at school learned and how much of it was homegrown through trial and error or just picking other people's brains who were involved in different aspects of videography yeah, so I would say it's a mix of both. I've definitely applied a lot of what I've learned to 
like building out things on the site or building out, um, you know, I've, I've, I've built out a lot of things that make it more efficient or easier for me to run the site at the level that it's at. So some of it came from like directly from things that I learned, concrete things that I, uh, that I applied, but you know, in, in the world of computer science, there there's a thing, uh, or you know, in software development, there's a thing called a back-end developer and a front-end developer. Back-end is someone who builds like databases and does all like the data analysis, more or less, and you know, shuffles the data around. And then there's the front-end person who builds like the actual user-facing part of a website that people see. And so those are typically the two camps when it comes to, so if someone says they're a software developer, they're more or less doing one or the other. They're either working like, uh, behind the scenes, you know, building out the actual like infrastructure, or there's someone on the front end who's building out the the user interface that the um, obviously the user uses to interact with the stuff that's happening on the back end. So my background is more on the back end side of things. So I've 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 100% applied things that I've learned to to Hey Five Six from that. But there's also this, you know, there's a lot of like front end stuff that I never actually learned in school. And so I, I will, if, if there's, if I need to build um, some new interface for my website um, that I didn't actually learn how to build in school, I will watch dozens of YouTube tutorials or read a bunch of articles uh, until I've learned enough to actually like go out and then build a very basic prototype of it. So I would say it's a mix. Some of it is stuff that I've learned directly, but a lot of it is just like teaching myself, but it's teaching myself with have already, like I've already, I've already been trained to like, you know, coming from that background, I've already have trained myself to uh, think and learn in a certain way that um, even though if I'm coming into something that's, you know, tangentially related, I'm able to pick up. I'm able to pick it up relatively quickly because I've been conditioned to like learn those concepts um, in a certain way. So I don't think. I think I probably could have learned some of what I'm doing on if I had no technical experience. I probably could have learned. I probably could have implemented a fraction of what I'm doing. But like for example, on Hey Five Six, there is an AI. Um, powered band recommendation algorithm called Sage that I built. I actually launched it uh, three years ago. Uh, I was actually going to bring that up. So since you already started, why don't you go into Sage and... Okay. So um, yeah, so Sage is this AI band recommendation um, algorithm that I built. And basically you tell Sage, you basically give Sage a list of bands that you like and a list of bands that you don't like. And it'll recommend you bands that it thinks you might like. And it's it's based off of... Um, shared listening habits. So if you and I listen to minor threat and SSD or whatever it is, I mean, this is the typical, this is the, this is the example I always go to. But if, if you and I listen to a lot of minor threat and SSD, like we, and, and um, you and Richie Karach also listen to minor threat and like black flag a lot, or let's say Richie Karach also listens to minor threat and uh, SSD, but he also listens to a lot of black flag. Like, the algorithm has learned to recommend more or less Black Flag to me based off of my shared listening habits with you and your shared listening habits with Richie Crutch. 
So that's kind of how Netflix does their recommendations because they are able to see what people watch and how they rate movies. So based off of people's shared watching habits, they're able to, like, if you, if you think of it as a social network where, you know, people are connected based off of the movies they watch or the bands they listen to, and it's this whole massive connected social graph, you're able to make suggestions based off of how close people are, not just people, but how close people and bands or movies are in that, like, graph more or less and that social graph so um funny story with how sage came to be and actually this goes back to my my little example of like uh um joe book this is hardcore gorilla biscuits you know i was talking about co-reference resolution this ties into that so the last tech company that i worked for um was this financial news analysis company in new york city so i was actually living in philly and they let me work from philly remotely so it's basically I was, I, was, I was making a new york salary salary living in philly which is amazing which is great and um so i was the lead data scientist so there's there were four of us at the company so i was the lead data scientist and we were basically building out building an app to read financial news articles and to create or build ai that would automatically summarize it because if you're a financial news and if you're a financial investor you want to know immediately what people are saying because like that split decision can impact whether you're you're buying the stock when it's high or low you know what i mean so um because in in a given day like one news article could tank a company's stock you know some bad news about elon musk could really like drive tesla stock down considerably that day so if you're a financial investor you want to know as quickly as possible what the news is about the companies that are on your radar because if it's if it's good news then you're happy if it's bad news then you're not happy you want to sell you want to sell that stock or whatever it is so we were basically building algorithms to read financial news articles and create or use ai to um, generate very brief summaries of those news articles because again you don't want to read the full fucking article like you want to know quick bullet point summary okay here's what happened today boom 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 you know so um my task one of one of my one of my many tasks was to build this essentially this ai that would read a news article and identify not just the names and not just the companies but their relationships so if the article mentions Elon Musk and Tesla or it mentions Bill Gates and Microsoft, the AI needed to learn that um, one, Elon Musk and Bill Gates are people uh, uh, and relatedly that Tesla and Microsoft are companies and not just that, it needed to learn that there is a relationship, a hierarchical relationship between Elon Musk and Tesla where Elon Musk is the CEO of Tesla. He's not in a, he's not like uh, an employee of Tesla. He's like the top of the chain, you know? So the AI needed to be able to read hundreds or thousands of financial news articles, and it needed to identify all of the people and all of the companies, and it needed to identify, or it needed to learn through like algorithmic inference who operates which companies and how are they related. So... You know, for example, not just that, but like it needed to identify like, um, you know, 
you know, an article might mention um, Verizon or Comcast, but then the AI needs to also know that I, I don't, does, does Time Warner own Comcast at this point? I can't remember. But basically you had this whole like consolidation of, of companies that's happening right now in, in, in the world. So the AI needed to learn that, you know, you know, person A is the CEO of company X, but company X is actually owned by company Z. You know, so it needed to learn the hierarchy of things between like people and companies. Anyway, so I, I ended up, um, there's there's a well-known algorithm called word to vec and I, I won't go into the, the details, but it's, 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 a, it's an algorithm that uh, Google has used a lot to basically learn the meaning of words. And so people have figured out how to apply it in other domains. And so basically I, I I, I applied that same algorithm to the space of, of news articles and in a way to learn like how things are related. And it actually worked pretty well. So my, my algorithm was actually able to identify that um, Elon, Elon Musk had a, um, like it, it basically learned the, a relationship between Elon Musk and Tesla. And it learned that Tesla is related to SpaceX and SpaceX is related to NASA, but like, like um, SpaceX is the private industry, essentially private industry version of NASA. If you know, you know what I'm getting at. So, so my algorithm is actually very successful at, at doing that, re relatively successful at identifying these relationships. But the the CEO at the company was just like, yeah, this is good, but it's not good enough. And so we had he basically shelved it, and I was like, you motherfucker, like this works really well. Like we should be using this because this is telling us a lot of information that the, the algorithm that the computer on its own can't identify. Like the computer on its own doesn't know that Elon Musk owns Tesla. So anyway, that was shelved and I ended up getting laid off from that job. That was like late 2017. Uh, I remember you were telling me about the algorithm machine and the way that you were working with it, but that it wasn't going to be used in, whatever project you were on at the time. And it just always baffles me how when something doesn't go right, you're immediately like, okay, how do I make this work for 856? Or how do I employ this to, for whatever purpose, whether it's for the videography or just the promotion of it? It is another aspect of you where you're always turning everything back into your passion and work and Explain that to me where this whole spark of, oh my God, yeah, this could work for what yeah, I shoot so I, for I remember shows. I went home that, I don't know if it was that day that he, that it got shelved, but around the same time I was thinking like, you know, how can I apply this to making band recommendations? Because, you know, I, there's, there's a certain way to do it that it can be applied. So I remember, I, I think around the time that I was working on that thing at my job, I was also taking that same approach and applying it to music data just for fun, just on my own at home. You know, I spent, I spent the working day nine to five working on this thing. And then I went home and I said, let me just try applying it to music data. And I was running experiments in my living room and just trying it out. And I was like, damn, this actually works pretty well. And so I remember after I got laid off, I was like, you know what? We never use this thing. So, and, and technically it's an off the shelf uh, algorithm that anyone can use. It wasn't proprietary in any sort of way. So I was like, you know what? Let me just try applying it to, um, or let me like build it out further. And so um, I built it out. I forget 
when it must have been like August of 2017, but um, I ended up building it out and just launching it on Hate by Six. And I, I had, again, going back to what we talked about, I had to, I had to teach myself a little bit of front end stuff, how to build a UI so people could like enter in like bands they like and bands they don't like, and to like build the interface that people can use. But to use, but I had already had essentially the AI engine already built from when I was working at that company. Um, and yeah, so that's sort of where I, I, I come at these things where I'm constantly working on something and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I know that it works in, in this world. How can I apply it to this other world that I'm interested in? And that other world that I'm interested in is like music and recommending, because essentially what Hey Five Six is, is it's a bullhorn where people are able to discover bands from a video that goes viral or whatever it is. So it's, it's a platform that's essentially allowing people to discover bands organically. So I'm constantly thinking about how can I build other tools or other vectors or other channels that will allow people to discover bands in a new or organic way. And so uh, for me, Sage was another way of doing that where like it allows people to like um, come and interact with it and try to discover new bands. Just thinking over the last hour, how, you went from being a skate kid and into shooting shows and you just created a algorithm that helps people find new bands from other bands. It's, it's incredible to see that. And I know that you are not someone who sits home and rests on his laurels, but it's gotta feel good. And also at times overwhelming just to see the good in what you've done and to see the work and how much, especially now looking at how far you've come and the places you've traveled, do you ever get overwhelmed or are you so engaged in the work that it's kind of hard to look up and smell the roses? No, I mean, it takes a lot of work. And like I said, going back to what we talked about earlier, a lot of it for me is breaking things down piecemeal into smaller chunks that I can digest. And so... Yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff has just been in development. Like, a lot a lot of what I do is the culmination of many years of iterating it and making it better, like, better and better ever so slightly. So, um, like, Hate Five Six is a democratic platform in the sense that viewers vote on what videos come out. So, for the longest time, I was filming shows, and then I would go home, and then I, w- I would determine, like, all right, I'm going to upload this video today. I'll upload that video tomorrow, whatever. I was coming up with the schedule myself. And then I said to myself, that's inefficient. Like, one, why am, why am I the one to decide that? And two, that's... Well, you also have the entire internet shitting on you and bitching. Like, how come you didn't put up the video I want? Yeah, I get shit on. And then also, I realized I was spending too much time doing that. I was spending too much time doing the, the, the actual, like, scheduling of content. So then I said to myself, okay, well, maybe, maybe there's a way to democratize this through, like, a voting system. So I, I slowly built, like, a voting system that took a couple years to like reach maturity, but now the site has reached this level where, you know, I film, the, I film a show, I'll go home and edit it, but then it's up to viewers who choose to vote. And it, basically the, the voting is through, anyone who supports my work through Patreon has the ability to vote. So if you like what I'm doing enough to support me through Patreon, then you have the ability to vote because then you are now part of the process. You are now, you now have a say in when the content comes out. And so one that removes myself from the equation. So I'm no longer 
the sole person making the decisions about when band a is coming out i am not the dictator of the of the content the, the content like distribution it's it's distri- it's i've i've essentially distributed that decision making process across all of the viewers who want to be a part of that process so you can't blame me anymore you can only blame yourself is what i tell people it's like i'm i'm going out and filming my job is to film and edit the best way possible it's up to you and to rally your people or rally whoever you need to to get that video out sooner than later and the other part of it is it frees up my time so i'm not sitting here like working on okay i'm going to schedule this band for release today i'm going to i'm going to physically click upload the algorithm handles all of it the the algorithm like it manages what people are voting on manage, manages what people's votes are and then every morning it figures out what is the most voted for video up until that point that of that morning. And then it schedules that video to be automatically uploaded, automatically posted on Twitter, Facebook, uh, on YouTube, everywhere. So I, I don't do anything. I, I'm, I'm sometimes asleep when a video gets voted on and posted. So, um, that took many years of just figuring out, okay, I'm spending a lot of time doing this part. Like I, I spend a lot of time writing, like literally writing captions to post in the YouTube description or writing the caption that goes on the Instagram post. And I, I finally got to a point where I was like, you know, what? I, that's kind of like a Mad Libs template, you know, you just got, you got to populate the band name. You got to populate the, the date of the show, the location, and maybe the band camp link and maybe some other like information. But a lot of that can be generated automatically. And so it took me a couple of years, but I slowly built out this thing. And, and in hindsight, I'm like, damn, that is super easy. I, I could have, and looking back, like, yeah, I could have built that in a day, but it, it, I, I needed to go through the process of doing things manually to understand what could be streamlined and what could be due through automation. So whether it's the voting or whether it's the actual uploading done automatically, or now like, the actual like automatically gener like literally generating text for the caption of the videos like it took me it took me doing that manually to figure out how can i how can i build something to do that for me cuz that's going to free up my time to film more shows or edit more videos or do whatever it is so that's how i've been able to like scale things up it's by you know some people will turn to other people like I could I could probably hire an intern to handle all. Yeah, that I'm stuff. surprised by now you actually haven't ran out and done that with your connections to all the colleges and whatnot. Yeah, so I could hire an intern, but for me, like being a technical person, like I'll just build a fucking algorithm to do it, and that'll that'll do it for me. Because I'm I'm a I'm a control freak, and like Hate Five Six is my baby, and so I know at some point I'm probably going to bring people on, and it's probably good for me to like teach people some of the things that I've learned. Well, I think teaching people could take some of the heavy lifting or just a little tedious task off, but it's good that you still run all your social medias. And I think that the question I should ask right now pertaining to that is that for someone who has a Patreon, has a YouTube channel, builds and run his own site, engages in Twitter and Instagram posts daily, sometimes multiple times and you have tons of show postings how much do you let the feedback positive or negative influence the direction that you're going with projects and how much feedback do you feel is not good for your own mental health 
because of the amount of trolls and just haters that are on there picking at you. Yeah, I, I think I think there's definitely an impact there. I mean, um, I definitely I definitely solicit feedback from people. Like, um, I I haven't done any I haven't done any major updates in a while on the site, but like every now and then I'll make a post saying like, hey, what would be better? Or like, what would you like to see done differently? And I'll get some really good responses from people saying like, oh, I wish I could sort the videos by upload date. Or if I could, I wish I could sort the videos by popularity. So like something basic like that, that I didn't think about a lot of, like some of those things will come from user feedback that I will then spend some time to integrate into the website. So a lot, some of what I do actually comes from user feedback, um, positive and negative. Like I'll, I, Lately, I, I, I lately I stopped reading negative feedback because it's just it's it crushes my soul and it it does it does me very good it does me very. I mean, to me and you, we have these kind of talks all the time, and it'll be either one of us showing the other one a post or seeing a comment, and it's good to have that kind of peer support, where you're like, look at this fucking idiot, or man, that that guy would never say anything like that to my face, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. The thing you got to realize is so much of what is on the internet is just viewed as content. And since so much of these people who interact with stuff that we take seriously and stuff that we put a lot of effort into is not any kind of special thing for these people. I mean, we're dealing on social medias where this isn't the kid that's at the show at Voltage. And there's seldomly someone who's as engaged or as dedicated to hardcore. In fact, I think a lot of what I see in the negative feedback is usually people who are, aren't even fly-by-nighters. But, you know, they might have a couple hardcore bands and that they listen to on Spotify and that's that. But social commentary is just par for the course now. And it's why records spin quick. You know, a record will come out on Friday... And within three weeks, so many people have talked about it. It kind of just kind of gets watered down and you don't feel the same impact from stuff because there's so much communication and debate that, you know, the social media is not always the best outlet specifically for discourse or positivity. That being said, I'm sure because of the nature of the stuff that you work on and because of how much work you do towards hardcore and how much these videos benefit hardcore there has to be somebody out there or a comment made or a suggestion in your inbox that kind of led you in a direction where you had not initially thought because i know in my own festival and just show bookings from time to time some people come up with good ideas and you gotta have to sift through and they're almost like a needle in a haystack in their own way I don't know. I mean, I definitely, when I read some negative feedback, it makes me more unapologetic about who I am. Because a lot of the feedback, a lot of the negative feedback I get is just personal attacks, whether people don't like me because I'm a brown person in, in hardcore with a political opinion, or whether it's the Hey 5 6 logo, whatever it is, like a lot of the attacks just caught there. It's, I've learned to just ignore it because I know they're trying to, they're trying to they're trying to take me away from my the, the course that I'm on. They're trying to detract, detract me from my course. But I also realized that at the end of the day, if someone's talking shit, like they're still engaging on my posts. 
well, you know what I mean? Let me and... let me stop you. I kind of want to change directions here and ask you a question because you would know this. Is there algorithmic value to the interactions that these shit talkers give when they're blah, blah, blah all over your posts? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I would say so. So um, I lately I, I embrace people talking shit on me or whatever because like – what for me, what Hey Five Six is, like I said earlier, it's this bullhorn. You know what I mean? I'm 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 filming a band, whether it's a small band or big big band. I'm putting it on the on the platform, and my my job at the end of the day is to get as many eyes and ears on that band as possible, because maybe that will get them the next record deal, or get them a show offer, or get them some merch sales, or whatever it is. And and, and that has happened. Like many bands have been able to level up because of a Hey Five Six video. So, at the end of the day, for me, the when I wake up every morning, the objective is this video needs to reach as many eyes as possible. And it's all about engagement. And so when people are talking shit on me or whatever it is, like I welcome it because at the end of the day, they are still commenting on the post and they are really just like, they don't, they don't, they don't see it because they're, they don't have the, the foresight, I guess, but they don't realize that they are like, they are like literally fuel, like they are food for this social media engine that consumes them and their engagement and their attention. Like that's really what it is. Like as long as they're commenting, I have their attention and that's driving more attention from other people to the original post. So they're talking shit, but they're actually helping you out. Yeah. And so I, I, I told someone recently like, Hey, if, if me, you know, if, if burning myself, as fuel for a little bit for on a post helps with that post reaching a larger audience. I'll take it. You know, it's cause I, I, I know that for every one person who doesn't like me, there's countless more who appreciate what I'm doing and not that I do it for people. Not that I do this cause I want people to like me. Yeah, I mean, obviously you want people to like you, but like I'm not negatively impacted by knowing that someone hates me or someone thinks that I'm, like milking the scene or whatever it is. Like I, I don't care. I literally don't care. For every person who works towards whether it's a goal or it's something that is publicly known, there will be people who want to bring it down. And I am obviously no stranger to that. And having seen you and know that you are not swimming around in a pool full of gold like Scrooge McDuck, I know that you are not out there for the money and I, I kind of want to turn the page, make this a little more positive, And I want you to kind of go over some of the more interesting projects that you have done in the past and some of the things you're moving forward in the future through 3D printing and through your milling and just the extra stuff that isn't just video, film and web work that is just one more aspect of not only your creativity, your drive, but also your innovation and pushing this platform. Yeah. So specifically with like Daedalus, I had a, I took classes at a machine. When I was living in Boston, I took classes at a, classes at a machine shop. When you were working for that company? That was when I was working up at, for a BBN in, in Boston. So I took classes. I learned how to use a CNC plasma cutter to learn how to like design um, some structures in solid, like basically how to do 3D modeling. So design something 
in uh, 3D modeling software and then take that um, and then actually like use a CNC machine to cut it out with computer precision. Um, so learn that. I learned how to use like a Bridgeport mill. So I, and basically I have no training in any sort of uh, like manufacturing outside of that. So I, I literally took classes on how to do it just to get the basic version of Daedalus uh, built. Um, and yeah, so recently I bought a 3D printer. So because I'm, I'm I'm trying to actually resurrect Daedalus. It's been uh, so for anyone who's listening, I, I built that in like 2013, 2014, and I was not allowed to use it. At this is hardcore that year because the uh, the owner of the venue was like, "That thing's no. gonna fall from the sky and kill no, someone." No, 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 no. <laughs> Correction. Correction. <laughs> this was Jerry Market, and he is the most talented and crazy person I've ever met. And he is the venue production manager. And so this guy was willing to sit through three, maybe four Bad Luck 13 security meetings and was listening to how we were planning out all the chaos at the end of 2014 with Bad Luck 13 headlining. And he always sat there kind of quiet and shaking his head and, you know, little things like, okay, make sure they don't have this on the floor and we got to make sure this. And, you know, when we got to talking about the wood chipper, he started shaking his head and was like, what, what are you going to do about the gas? And what are you going to do about all the bone shards? And we were just kind of like, huh, bone shards. And so I was, I was told that it was going to be a, they were going to, they were going to pretend it was uh jag in the in the in the coffin and they were going to do some sleight of hand and put a pig in the coffin and then shove the coffin well no no (laughs) i I mean they were going to use a deer carcass or a pig carcass and between brian dilworth r.i.p and jerry shaking her heads and finding out about the bone shards and the toxic (laughs) gas all that got kind of nixed but yeah there was no live animals going to be hurt and they were just going to shoved a fake coffin that was supposed to be Jay as uh, the big finale for the fest in 2014. Yeah, and, and I, actually, for so for full disclosure, I recently went back and read the, I think I have the email. Or there was some email, I think, and what he said to me was, in the past, people have tried setting up similar contraptions for bigger shows, and at the venue, there was no way of suspending it safely. So he came at it knowing that other people have tried. And he was just saying, like, hey, letting, letting you know, other people have tried this and it hasn't worked here. So you can basically try it, but I'm telling you it's probably not going to work. So that, that's, that's the true story. It wasn't he was telling me no to be a dick. He was telling me that, like, yeah, it's, it's been tried, it's been attempted, and it's, it's not easily done. Here. Yeah, I mean, the guy has done zombie 5K runs at night with Dago Plant. If anyone could pull something like that shit off, it would be him. So, back on track now. What made you bring this whole thing back to life? Yeah, so it's been sitting on my wall as like an art piece for ever since that. So basically, I, I built it. Um, it it kind of worked. It wasn't perfect. And then I blew the motor. And I was like, you know what? I'm done with this thing. And by that, by that point, drones were becoming readily available. You could buy a drone for cheap. So I was like, you know what? I don't need to spend more time building this. Like I, I learned a lot. Like even though going back to what I was talking about earlier, like yeah, I tried this thing, I failed, but I, I learned something. I learned how to use a CNC machine. I learned how to design something in SolidWorks, and I tried it. You know, it didn't really work out. It worked out like a pro- the prototype worked, but I never actually got to use it. So you win some, you lose some. So it, it's kind of been sitting on my wall, 
as like a reminder as an art piece and i talk about it every time like i'm doing an interview where someone asks about it like i talk about it and so during the this quarantine i've been staring at it, i'm like you know what i need something to do and i really think that i can revisit this it's been a couple years and technology's improved with 3d printing like i don't need to go to a machine shop and manufacture these things i can literally just print something in my living room like these small brackets or space like uh, specially designed spacers like these tiny little things I can just make them on my own. I can just print them. So um, that's been it. Like, obviously, there's no shows happening, so I don't have any immediate any immediate use for it. But I have a lot of time right now, so I'm like, you know, let me try to do it. And I feel like it would be a huge morale boost for me right now because I think like everyone needs something right now to get them through what's going on. And I feel like if I can get this up and running, it'll be a, a huge win for me. Like emotionally. Okay. Besides, fuck you, I did it. What would be the application you use? Yeah. So one, one is a fuck you, I did it. Two, like, let's say if I wanted to film like a, you know, it's been a while since you and I have filmed uh, like a promo video for This Is Hardcore. But you can imagine if we were like, if we were filming a chase scene in the woods where you're like running from the law, like we could have a sequel to The Fugitive where you're running from the, you're, you're still in your orange jumpsuit. You're now running. You know, you got out of the raft. I, 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 I'm assuming people who are listening have actually watched The Fugitive. Well, if you haven't... I mean, yeah. So there's probably plenty of people that were never privy to any of the shenanigans that we were pulling off as far as promos go. Back as far back as 2010 and 2011, we did like mini movies. And then in 2012, we went crazy and Sonny directed and shot and produced the Fugitive. A uh, ton of crazy, silly cast. Um, some of the PA hardcore people dress up like Oompa Loompas. I was Willy Wonka. A very weird moment. And in fact, I mean, we've made a few sillier ones, but shorter in 13 and 14, and stopped, I think, 15? Maybe 16, I think was our last one. So yeah, we haven't done a silly promo in a long time. If you want to check it out, um, look up Hey Five Six, Fugitive, or any of the This Is Hardcore promos, and uh, hopefully you don't think we're absolute complete dorks. Yeah. So basically, like I wanna, I wanna suspend this. It's a bit for anyone who can't doesn't know what I'm talking about. If you think of like the NFL Skycam, it's this camera that basically sits along a couple cables, and it's able to like run get these aerial shots that move around. So that's essentially what I'm building. I'm building this cable suspended aerial camera system that's gonna be remote controlled. And so, uh, really, I, there's, uh, there's a lot I could do with it. I could suspend it between two trees. I could film someone, like, running. Like, there's, like, a chase scene in the woods. I could have this suspended between two trees where there's, like, a clear line of sight and just have a cool tracking shot. Or, for example, if someone's, like, if I want to start filming, like, mountain biking videos, which, I, you know, maybe I'll start doing that because there's no shows happening. But, like, I could set this up between two trees on a mountain bike trail and just track the rider as they're going down the trail. And, again, this will all be remote controlled. Uh... And it basically, the motor on it would allow the whole camera to, like, run along the cable and track the rider. Uh, when shows happen again, I could honestly, like, if, if, I, if I'm able to suspend a cable, like, I to suspend a cable, like, above the crowd between, like, you know, between two trusses or whatever and get some really cool aerial shots that I probably wouldn't, might, not actually be, might not actually be able to get with a drone. So, I don't know. Part of it is just me wanting to close a chapter that's been open in the back of my mind like damn i never finished that project two i feel like it's gonna be 
a huge morale morale boost for me right now being like damn I, I got this thing done during this quarantine like i you know i finished this thing and then three at least to have this tool in my you know in my like toolbox that i could or my arsenal that i could use whether like i could even use it as like a wet like, at, at a wedding you know i could film like the bride walking down the aisle and have like a cool aerial shot that tracks her so there's i just have a lot of potential applications for it but for me the more immediate thing is just just to get it done and just to say and just just to say that i did it I'm actually glad that you uh, brought up Love 5.6. I mean, you can't have Hate 5.6 and not have Love 5.6. So did someone come to you and ask you if you would shoot their weddings and if you had done one? Or did you just offer a friend when they were getting married? So uh, Mike from Mindset, the guitarist, he was getting married and his wife, and I had filmed Mindset countless times at that point. And I think he and his wife, or fiance Sarah at the time, were like, hey, would you want to film our wedding? And I was like, fuck it. Why not? That could be kind of fun. So I, again, I saw it as a challenge because it's different from filming a show, but there are similar elements. Like at the, at the show, you need to be able to capture that stage dive or you need to capture like that important breakdown or that moment in that song. That one moment in that song where everyone goes off, you need to capture it because you have that one specific, you have that one chance to get it right. And at a wedding, you have that one, you have that, you have to get that first kiss. You have to get that first dance. So even though it's a different environment, there is a level of similarity there that I felt like was going to be a fun challenge. And again, it really felt like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so ingrained with filming shows and doing this thing that this new thing is very exciting because it's, it's still in the world of videography, but it's, it's different enough where it poses itself as a new challenge. And I wanted a new challenge. And so I started filming weddings under Love 56 because the, the, na the name and the logo just made perfect sense. From Hey 56 to Love 56. Um, and so I mostly just filmed like friends' weddings, like friends whose bands I had filmed. Um, and then I had done, I've done a couple wedding videos for random clients who saw, who've seen some of my other wedding videos. Um, and I've done maybe like two dozen two or three dozen and I've, I've kind of slowed down with them i haven't i've i did a lot in like 2014 2015 i filmed my brother's wedding which was which was interesting um but in the last like two or three years i've kind of slowed down i've maybe done only like one or two a year uh just because i wanted to focus more on hey five six but um i don't know with the lack of shows happening and I, I mean weddings are kind of your what even weddings are in jeopardy right now because people can't have large gatherings so i was initially going to ramp or they could hire love five, or they could six and, and, do a, do and do a virtual uh, do a virtual wedding hey virtual wedding ain't bad my wife and i eloped we went down on the beach less than half a dozen people knew about it i mean you could do some uh digital eloping i guess i mean you gotta get your ass out there yeah. making that bread so I don't brother. Know, part of me is like damn you know i got some time and i'm not filming shoes maybe i need to like go back and do some more wedding related stuff just to keep myself busy and get, get some um, income coming in. I think it's a good time now that we're talking about COVID to bring up something that I was looking for a segue in and you brought me to it. Has until 2020 you ever been asked or has someone picked your brain about how to do a live stream event and what are your thoughts on the future of live streaming events in general? 
Yeah, so I've I've actually been asked to do live streams a lot in the past. Um, and I, when was the very first one you were asked? I recall you being involved in the B and B Bowl, but that was a little bit they, ago. Let's see. That was like yeah, 2013, they, uh, right? I mean, a judge was uh, 2013. Yeah, they wanted to do it. I remember Texas is the reason wanted me to live stream some of the, their final reunion shows. I can't remember what year that was, but that was around around the same time. Um, people had always asked, oh, maybe you should, even going back to like 2012, 13, maybe not that far back, but like people had always been asking, hey, you should really live stream this is hardcore. You should live stream, you should live stream. And for me, I was already getting enough backlash from people being like, your videos are the reason that people don't come to shows anymore. That's actually feedback that I get from people. People claim that the videos are they they actually incentivize people to stay home and not go to shows. That's that's some feedback I've actually gotten from people. Um, well, I mean, I'll I'll just say it right now that the chicken and egg argument as to if people stay at home because there's videos that they can see. If someone has no means financially or the time off of work or kids, yeah, you know what? They're not going to come to any show or maybe some of the bigger shows because of those restrictions. However, you have to be only mildly involved or just not interested in live music to sit and wait seven or eight months for some of these videos to come out. It's ridiculous. And, you know, there is just people who are looking to provoke and insinuate that there is a damaging effect but that's not the truth hardcore has gained so much from social media for all its detracting points and your videos and live streaming in general will only continue to push the culture further and with covid going on and no live shows you know the scenes on life support and anything that can keep it rolling until things start opening back up is worth at least chance of trying it out. If you don't like it, fuck it, turn it off or don't do another again. Yeah, no, and that's a good point because whether or not I was, I've been doing this, like this is where technology was taking us. Like we were, we were eventually going to get to the point where like video was going to be viable on the internet and going to be like the medium that pe- people would be consuming. So if it wasn't me, someone else would have been doing what I'm doing at, at this scale. Maybe, oh, I don't know. I don't know, maybe not. But like, I think people want to blame me for certain things, but, you know, I, the, the, a certain person. Well, I mean, if it's not going to be you, someone else is going to do it. So yeah. it, it, it's still an right. well, so, someone, someone, I don't want to name them, but they're basically saying that, oh, you're, uh, you know, there used to be, there used to be distinct um, mosh styles or sounds before, like video became. You know, it's it's the same. Or- no, no, no. I you know, since people are looking at this that way, I have to step in and say that mosh moshing has changed more because of social media and because of more people touring. And just the general nature of the kind of bands that play are more homogenized. So as hardcore homogenizes and sounds homogenize, obviously the people and the way that they react to the shows are going to be more in sync with that. You know, there was an entire tape trading culture before there was any form of headbangers ball videos. And I'm pretty sure that 
no one complained when people shot VHSs. In fact, it was seen as like an exciting thing if someone had a bootleg tape and everyone would sit on the floor in someone's house or in their basement and check out like, oh, cool, where'd you get this tape from? Oh, yeah, this is a dub of some show, whether it was like Middlesex County College in New Jersey. And we were so excited, even though we were there at the show when it was happening. So there is no impact that would be uh, felt negatively because of these videos. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so part of me has always been adverse to doing live streams because I always felt like, you know, the show is in the moment. And as much as I love my videos and, and doing the stuff, I never want a video to replace the experience of being at a show. And I don't think it, I don't think it could ever. And I don't think it should ever. You know what I mean? So I've always felt that um, for me, filming should always be an archival thing where it's like I'm filming this moment in time and then I'm going to go home after the fact and then share it. And if, if you were there that like you you were there and you know you were there and you experienced it. And I always felt like maybe doing live streams would encroach on that a little too much, that separation. Did you ever look into any previous live stream events or anything that failed that would make you scrutinize or think twice about doing events like this? I, no, no, I don't, I don't, uh, nothing, nothing of that sort. Um, but I, yeah, I, I just sort of felt that that would be the case that it would because what makes hardcore what it is is that interaction between the band and the crowd or yeah the band and the audience like you need a that packed room of people going off because that's what that's what i for me makes it so unique and i agree and at the same time although i i know what the shows that i really enjoy seeing and i know the bands that i really enjoy seeing but there's a plethora of bands who are completely comfortable behind a barrier and 808s, scribs, and the big backdrop. And this generation of hardcore in particular definitely is buying into that. And, you know, obviously people like myself still go see Iron Maiden all the time. And there is no chaos of an Iron Maiden show besides getting to and from the parking lot in your car and how long you have to wait till you get out onto the street again. So, yeah, there, there's definitely something about the lightning in a bottle feeling and the chaos and energy, but plenty of people who are hardcore people now have no problem with a much more, I would say, subdued live concert experience. Yeah, so, yeah, no, I think that's, that's, that's a great point. Um, and, and the other part of it is, like, early on, I was working with very limited resources. And so I always felt that why should I spend more time, energy, and money to bring a live stream when I can spend that time, energy, and money to make my recordings even better? Because that's what people are going to be watching these videos five years, 10 years, 20 years from whenever the show was recorded. So I'd rather make that recording as best as possible than to like divert those resources just to make like a you know an average quality live stream if that makes any sense. 
So that was always my go-to response to people like, uh, I mean, yeah, it's cool to be in the moment, but also like, I'd rather just make my videos better. And I, and I feel like I did. I feel like my videos have gotten much better over the years, uh, whether it's bringing Len on board to help with the audio or buying multiple cameras or whatever it is. I've, I've constantly tried to improve the quality of my videos. And that's by sticking to the principle of like, what's most important and what's most important is like, the document, the document being the video that's going to be watched for the next 20, 30, 40, however many years and making that as best as possible and not, um, and not doing anything to, to, to take away from that. And I don't know, in hindsight, maybe that was a little bit of excuse just to not dabble with live streaming. Cause obviously now people are, that's the only way we're going to be able to, for a lot of people are like going to be able to experience live music is through, a live stream and so the last these last couple of months i've been investing more um money to buying better gear for that's more better suited for doing live streams um even today i was running a bunch of live stream tests and so i'm really diving into that space and i i, I really think it took this circumstance for me to finally feel comfortable with doing it um because Without it, I, I still feel like I'd be a little bit on the sidelines with, with the whole idea. So what are some of the trouble spots that you could fall in, like a pitfall that wouldn't occur in a live show that are a potential problem with shooting and running a live stream performance, especially like the Code Orange stuff that you just For did? For me, like some of the big things are sync issues because so if, if, I, if I'm filming a show and I go home and edit If I'm filming a show with multiple angles and I go home to edit it, I can spend however, however much time I need to make sure all the angles are uh, in sync that let's say, let's say let, let's, for example, you and I are both recording this podcast right now. You're recording your end. I'm recording my end. So if all, if all goes smoothly, like we can take both sides of this conversation and merge them and they're going to overlap just fine. And there's not going to be any sort of, um, issues you know what i mean i and, hope so <laughs> yeah I hope so, I hope so too but like let's say halfway through this interview there's like a one second glitch in the recording and, and neither of us noticed on your end or my end if we go back and try to sync it there's gonna be you know the first half of it might be fine but somewhere along the line because of that glitch halfway through where it's skipped and it, it's no longer gonna be like pound for like bar for bar like lined up there's going to be a point where it's not synced anymore. So when I'm editing a video, like I'm able to make sure that everything's good. But if something happens live, like let's say if a, if there's some sort of like, you know, when I'm doing a live stream, the cameras have to be all connected together through a switch. If one of the cameras goes down for a second and it comes back online, it might not be in sync anymore. Like there's some technical stuff that makes it, it might not be in sync or it might be off by a couple milliseconds. But that, that could be noticeable to someone who's, who's watching it on the other end. Or, for example, like the audio. Um, it, when I'm doing these live streams, we're getting a soundboard mix. But the soundboard mix might not sound great on the viewer end. It might sound good when we're, when we're like in the room listening. But it might not sound good for whatever reason when it comes out on the end of, of the person listening. Um, or that also might not be in sync. Or for example, like the internet connect, there's there's fluctuation in the internet connection. You, you can think the you can think of an inter, inter, the inter, your internet connection as like a like a plumbing 
Are you talking like the internet connection for the building, like in the show? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, basically. So you and I, you know, when we're when we're on the internet, you can think of like your internet as like a a a plumbing pipe where water is flowing, like for your upload and download speed. There there might be uh, a slight clog, an intermittent clog in in that network that could cause a hiccup. So you're you're losing your ability to upload. You know, because when you're, when you're doing a live stream, you want the best quality possible. So you want to use as much of that like pipe to send all that data out. But during your stream, there might be a hiccup in the network because there's other people in the neighborhood using the same network or whatever it is. Maybe maybe on YouTube, they have a hiccup on their end. There's always going to be fluctuations. And that could cause like a, a, a decrease in quality for an arbitrary amount of time during the stream. So there's things like that that I worry about mostly with syncing or or, or with just a level of quality. There's also the the concern that what, what happens if there's like a whole technical fuck up in the middle of a stream? Like what happens if there's a power outage and the camera goes down or the whole computer, the streaming computer goes down because of a power outage? All the people who are watching the stream are going to be like, what the fuck just happened? They're, they're, they're not. Well, I mean, there's also fights and venues getting pissed off and shutting shows down, cops showing up, curfews getting exceeded. There's definitely some traditional live show fuck-ups that can definitely put a wrench in the works, but it sounds like some of the things that you're talking about are definitely beyond the average show failure. So changing gears but staying on this topic a little bit, you were just involved in what I think of as the first big hardcore live streaming event. And I just kind of wanted you to walk us through it and give a little detail as to how it was done and how you ended up being a part of the team with Code Orange when they did that stuff in March. Yeah, so I was they I was already planning on coming out to the show to film it as like the record Yeah, that was like a record release show party, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was gonna be them, Every Time I Die, Zayo, Jesus Peace, maybe Year of the Knife too, I can't remember. But there was gonna be like a lot of Yeah, you were planning on going up. I remember talking about it with you yeah, on so the phone. Yeah, so Jamie was like, Yeah, you should come out and film it, like this would be cool. So that was the plan from the beginning, just to film it like a regular fucking Hey Five Six video. Um and I remember the week of like the week of the the shutdowns being discussed Jamie and I had gone back and forth. There was like, all right, well, maybe it's going to be just um, just the uh, all the bands with no audience, and we'll film it and, and post it the next day. And it it quickly evolved to, you know, 20, 48 hours before the show, it quickly evolved to, hey, we should just live stream this. It's just going to be us, empty venue. Let's not record it and upload it a day later. Like, let's literally do it live. And I was like... So when they asked you, did you have any other experience with live streaming this event, or did you just wing it? Uh... So I had done some live streams for my Patreon subscribers, not any shows. Uh, actually, back up. So I had done some live... I, I, I now do live streams of me like uh, going through my editing process. So I, I do like behind the scenes live streams, not of shows, but just me in my element doing my work. So I've, I was already experimenting with live streams. I actually live streamed... Um, Queens, Queensway played a show in... In, uh, in Baltimore. Baltimore. Uh, yeah, I remember uh, sanctioned headline, but it was Baltimore. That's a show I saw. I did that for fun. I was like, you know, I have a Twitch channel because um, I'm, I'm I'm doing these like live stream edits. Like, let me just throw, it, let me just do a, a basic live stream of a show. And I I had bought a new I bought a new camera that's like stream ready. So I, part of it is like me wanting to test it. 
So I, I streamed that show, and I remember telling you before the show, I was like, man, with my luck, a fucking fight's going to break out, and it's going to be on the stream. And you're like, nah, not, no, nothing's going to happen of the sort. Don't even worry about it. And guess what happened during – it was either during Queensway or Sanction, a fucking fight broke out. It was caught in the stream, and I had to, like – I put a lens cap on the stream during, like, during the finals. I was like, you know what? This doesn't need to happen right now. So I had been playing with the idea, but, like, nothing – Nothing major, no multiple cameras, no soundboard feed, just like bare bones shit. So I told Jamie, I was like, look, I've done this kind of, I, we could probably figure it out, but I'm a little concerned that it's not going to be up to par. Um, but again, I spent that 48 hours just like watching a bunch of YouTube, YouTube tutorials about how to like improve your live streams in terms of quality and sync issues and things like that. And like, I can't take all the credit. Like, we assembled the perfect team that can't. You know, um, on the job sites, we say fake it till you make it. And there definitely is some correlation between that and what you did. Although, you definitely weren't a virgin in the process. It's definitely something that you probably gained more hands-on experience learning in the flash than if you'd studied for six months. There still could have been problems. So going forward, how did the whole thing go and what did you learn from it? Yeah, I had a, I had a basic idea and luckily they, they, we had, um, so th that show was in Pittsburgh and they had like a local video, a video production company bring out, like they brought out like their, their NFL, the, their NFL style, massive broadcast camera that you see like during the NFL. Or the, and, how uh, bad did you want to steal that? Thing? I, dude, those things are like to rent are probably $50,000 and to buy it's at least a quarter of a mil. So I I was staring at them like God damn I want that thing so bad, but um, so and luckily we had people like them on board and they they've done like they've live streamed corporate events and things like that so they had they were able to bring some of the gear that I didn't have they had some experience that I didn't, did, I didn't have and so we were able to complement each other very well in and to and to pull it off so yeah that was one and that that happened right at the beginning of of this COVID shit and that video popped off like we had during the stream you had a massive captive audience man yeah it was like at least thirteen thousand people during the actual live stream yeah my wife and i were home and it was pretty intense man to sit there and watch that go down live yeah and and, and what's what's interesting to me is i've done a poll recently asking people like hey are you more willing to watch a live live stream or would you watch something that's pre-recorded and like premiered in real time and it was split across the board people were basically like the the, va the the consensus was it doesn't matter it doesn't matter for the viewer if it's live live what people what people want right now is just new content they don't care if it was recorded a day ago or an hour ago or an hour ago as long as they're watching it and there's like a chat they're watching it there's some sort of like live component to it whether it's a live premiere now, is that like on one of your streaming yeah, channels? Yeah, via, via Twitch or, or, or YouTube chat. Because like there's there's this, there's a thing called a, li a live premiere. So I live premiered the last Bane set, which was filmed four years ago. I live premiered uh, Every Time I Die, which was filmed in December. So those are those are basically... Now, now, what social media platform do you use when you're showing these kind of things? I do that on YouTube. So those are basically pre-recorded videos that are 
played in real time. So it's kind, it's kind, you could think of it as happening in real time, but it's not live. But there is a live chat, and usually for those things, I have the band in the chat, which makes it more fun because the basically they're watching the video with you, and the the viewers are like talking to them, so it makes it more engaging and fun that way. So now. Is that like your watch parties or is something different? It's, it's it's similar, but it's similar in execution, but it's different in the sense. So my watch parties are private for hate, uh, Patreon subscribers, but these YouTube premieres are public and open to anyone. So if the end user doesn't care whether it's pre-recorded or live recorded, what is the drive towards the live stream version of the till? Yeah, so for me, it's like, damn, like this is the authentic. We are all in this moment together right now doing this. That for me is what I love. I also just love the rush because, again, like there's so many things that could go wrong. And like the band, like if we if it's pre-recorded, the band could technically do a retake if they wanted of, of a song or two. Whatever, they fuck it up, they can redo it. But if it's live, like there's there's things that could, that could go wrong on my end. There's things that could go wrong on the band's end. So there's just this like... There's this rush. So yeah, on last Friday, I, I did a one one step closer live stream, and I, 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 I it was literally live. Like there were no. Was that down here or was that up near those guys? That was down here. They came down. We actually did it at Lens, uh, Len Carmichael Studio in Ewing, New Jersey, Landmont Studios. I was just up there with Mike doing uh, guest vocals on One on One's new project, man. It was cool to be back there. Yeah, he, he told me you, you came down. Yeah, Len's place is absolutely awesome. Yeah, he's he's been building it out. It's like really, it's really nice in there. So yeah, one step came down and that was live. We had I had I had a lot of technical issues. They we we ran a little late. We had some technical issues. I was getting really frustrated and I knew it was gonna happen. And I love those guys, but I was like, damn, you guys are dragging your feet with some of the setups. And I knew it was gonna happen. So I was kind of uh, under the gun with getting it up and. Um, I remember counting down. I was like, guys, we're going live in 10, 9, 8. And they started out with the lights off and they played like a little, they had a little bit of feedback with the lights off. And then when the first note hit, they like hit the lights on. And I had a, there was such a rush to that. And it's the same rush that I had during Code Orange. And even with the, I did, I did a Year of the Knife actual live stream and the most recent Code Orange live stream. Like it's the same rush. Like during, during this last Code Orange live stream, we, we did a bunch of dry runs and like they had a, it was an acoustic set and they had candles set up behind them. And during the, during our practice sessions, like some of the candles were catching fire. Like we had small fires breaking out and like we had to like stop the set and like put it out. Cause like the whole fucking room would have fucking burned down. Whoa. No fire marshal. Yeah, no fire marshal. So during the live stream, there was this element of like, yo, what's going to happen if a candle catches the fucking curtain on fire? And we're like, we're live on Twitch to thousands of people. Uh, luckily that didn't happen, but again, there was this element of like, dude, anything can happen and this isn't pre-recorded, so we're just going to go with it. Well, from being on the forefront with the Code Orange video and now teaming up with Will Yip, are you going to be focusing more on the live stream or because of Will and his recording studio, will you be delving into pre-recordings? We're trying to, we're trying to do as live as possible. Um, we've only done one so far. And so, and, and for us, I think like we're going to basically, and I think this is going to be my approach for a lot of things is it's really whatever the band wants to do. If the band wants to take the precautions and pre-record it, like that's cool. I'm cool with whatever the band wants to do. Cause like, like I said, the people have spoken, the people don't really care. Cause 
you know, I did the one step closer stream at 6 p.m. EST, which is 3 p.m. West Coast time. But then I had some people in Europe complaining about the time on their end. So no matter what time. Fucking Euros absolutely can never just shut the fuck up and enjoy something. Whether they're pissed drunk, bothering you to try on a shirt when they're soaking wet from being in the pit. Europeans need to complain less, be happy more that America even lets them enjoy yeah, their so hardcore. No matter what, there's always going to be there's always going to be someone who can't tune in at the time, and they're just gonna they're just gonna watch the replay of it the next morning or whatever. So those replays go away over time, right? I mean, they don't stay out forever. Do yeah, they? so that gets into some messiness because after the live stream, after the live stream, uh, so this is separate from. Is this the Will stuff? That you're doing uh, this is separate. Else? This is separate from Will Yip stuff. So if I do, if I so after my after my one step closer live stream, the the VOD the video on demand was. It's available on Twitch for like 24 or 48 hours. Um, it's available on Facebook indefinitely. It's technically available on YouTube indefinitely, but I only leave it up for a day because I want to, because what ends up happening is even though we're getting a soundboard feed, Len does clean up the mix and sort of master it a little bit better after the fact. So I there's a trade-off here because after the stream, all of the traffic is going to that archived VOD, but I don't want that VOD to be the one that's permanently available. I want the better quality one to be that's permanently available. So what ended up happening was the next morning after the live, after the one step live stream, like I made the decision to um, make the YouTube version private. And that one was already up to, so the Facebook version had 13,000 view, 10,000 views by the next morning. The uh, YouTube version had 6,000, but I had to make the call because I don't want that version to go viral. I wanted the version that had the cleaned up video, the cleaned up like video that at a higher quality. I wanted that one to be the definitive recording of that performance. So I made the call to like make the original VOD um, private. So I probably lost some traction I mean, that's going to happen could be just the nature of how I'm doing things. And that's caused a little bit of a headache in terms of like my procedure of things. Um, but I feel like in order for me to put out the best version possible, there's going to have to come a point where I need to take down the viral live video and replace it with the cleaned up higher quality version. No, it makes sense. And the process gives the opportunity for a more polished sound long term which will stay in posterity at the cost of some initial web virility i mean you're going to have that raw aggression feeling early on but as you've seen when so many people have come to you and asked you to do overdubs and take a screw out out in the mix for any number of videos from the fast even smaller ones i think you guys are doing the right thing with this whole thing yeah, so again, like, so for Will stuff, we're going to try to keep it as live as possible, but, you know, again... What if channels are you guys going to be doing this thing on? Is this something that uh, you've tried out yet? Yeah, so the so Will Will's building out... Um, so his studio is Studio 4, and so he's building out... Concha, Concha Hagen, yeah, shout out to Will. Concha, Concha. as they say. So he's, he's building out this live stream platform called Live at Studio 4. So he's trying to do kind of like an audio tree, but it's like live from his studio... And so um, he and um, his manager, Tim, Tim Zadowski. Um, That's Tim Zahodsky. Oh, is it Zahodsky? I never know how to say it. 
Zahadsky. That's an old friend of ours from the neighborhood. He grew up two and a half blocks from oh, us shit. as okay. kids. Yeah, OG Frank Prokharko kid was at some Unity Street Hall shows back in 96 and 7. Got it. Okay, yeah, so they're, they're building out this live at Studio 4 um, brand, basically. And so how it works is these their, their streams are ticketed. It's a ticketed stream. I don't know, like 10 bucks, 15 uh, bucks, 10, 20 bucks, either way, they'll pay for it. That's you got sure. to pay, but you're you're getting like Will, like Will, like literally Will Yip is mixing. This is Will fucking Will Yip Yip. talking about. You're getting you're getting a hate five six produced video if you care about that. You know what I mean? Collabo. It's a it's a great collab, but then but also like, and and I had someone I I put, I put I even though these aren't like a these aren't under the hate five six umbrella. I mean they are, but they're not like a hate five six live stream. Yeah, I'm, I'm an affiliated. It's like a hate five six powered live stream. So I'm still I'm still promoting these things because my name is still on it, and I and I want people to like tune in. So I posted about it, and someone was complaining like, "Oh, I can't believe I got to pay ten bucks." And I'm like, "Dude, like, you're getting a, you, this is well, this is just exactly what people do. It's just bitch, 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 complain, and yet they spend so much of their own stupid money yeah. on even dumber things. You can never make anybody happy in Looking this world. Looking for a complaint, but like I, like I said, this isn't like plopping a cell phone on the table and live streaming on Instagram Live. Like it's literally a multicam live stream. Will get mixed, and you're directly supporting the band that you're complaining about. You're complaining about it, but you're it's a band yeah, that you well, again, you're supporting. You're just, yeah, you're you're supporting. A, complain about it. You're supporting the band that you, that you like. And you should be supporting now because a lot of these bands. You know what? They, you know what? Yeah. Just break down for people. The way that the shows pay the bands, and we can kind of walk through just one of the many reasons why this is really beneficial to bands, especially when there aren't other revenue driving things going on right now. Yeah, so um, some of these bands are, if they're doing a ticketed live stream, they're um, you can do it through like a if, you, if your band has a Shopify account, there's a there's an app within Shopify that lets you do ticketed live streams, and that's essentially how. Uh, we're doing it with the Studio 4 stuff is through through a Shopify page. So, so let me get this straight. A band without Sonny, without Will Yip, can just go on this yeah, thing and they do, can this do it. Whole and, thing. And, and lessons learned. Wow, man. You can still do it learned. yourself, yeah. And wow. Without Total DIY. Six. And yeah, and, and the it's you're you're directly supporting the band and yeah, you know, there's the bands will typically they'll they'll print exclusive merch during the stream, and you can buy a merch bundle. You get the ticket and like a shirt at a, or a hoodie at a discount. So there's, I I think it's cool because again, a lot of these bands, I mean, no band is touring right now, and a lot of band, and a well another another thing to consider is that if they were touring, they'd be getting paid guarantees which are taxed. They'd be fighting with clubs for merch cuts and. This merch that you're talking about, that's going to direct to them sales. There's no one trying to touch that. In fact, it sounds like, you know, the live stream has a lot of benefits fiscally for these bands. And as you said, who aren't working right now and for people to bulk on paying to see it, it's actually Honestly, I think so. I really do. Um... You got to look at this mathematically as well. You know, uh, show expenses aren't factored in, so these bands Absolutely. are getting good yeah. money. So I think I think we're seeing that too. I mean, all of the bands that are doing uh, ticketed live streams, I guess like Under Under Earth has been doing a series, and those have been wildly successful. I think they were. I they mean, said, that's also like a pretty big mainstream band, right? Yeah, they have a huge audience. But again, like even small. I, I mean, the Tiger's Jaw, we, Tiger's Jaw, which we streamed with with Will Yip, like we had like a really good turnout. 
and you know the the band like you said the band is making a bit bigger bigger percentage of that and to the point i was making earlier like to the person complaining it's you know some bands like you're the knife for example they just had a brand new record come out and they can't tour so what are they supposed to do and so by the time they tour or by the time touring is allowed you know that record i hope it doesn't happen but that could be a forgotten thing you know because this stuff moves i can speak for you're the knife right now and tell you that when this whole thing cracks back open there's going to be a sea of maniacs waiting to see year of the knife everywhere that record's absolutely insane and i'm just so excited and not going to be disappointed by the band's touring plans that fail because i know in 2021 they're absolutely going to shred this entire country yeah, no, and world. I, I, yeah i listened to that that when it was when it first came out and it's amazing um but I, yeah I, I, but i think that there are some bands that they have records come out they can't tour and there is a risk that like well how are they going to get their money back or you know so they need a way of performing and and i think live streams ticketed or not uh i think right now are a good way for a band like if a band has a brand new record and they play a live stream that could you know even if it's free they could they could get so many eyes and ears on the new music so and, it sounds like the bands, even without a paywall, are making out well, and these things are working out good for them. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So like the the year of the knife, uh, so year of the knife. That was also done at Lenny's that studio, was all, right? Also Lenny. So year of the knife, one step closer, uh, and both could aren't streams, but those were all free streams. But band, those bands were selling merch during the stream, and they all did pretty well. They all did very well. So I think that that might be the model. Is like bands are gonna have to decide: do we want to do a uh, ticketed stream or free stream if it's going to be free can we do some sort of limited merch that's pushed during the stream to drive more attention and again like the more you can drive people to the stream the better it is in terms of reaching more people and so i think we're gonna and you know for for once up closer i decided to do like a merch giveaway so i, I got the band agreed to give away a couple like shirts and, and promo tapes i gave away a couple shirts so we actually had a lot of people tuned in because they wanted just the chance to win something so um I think we're probably going to see that a little bit more, just more in terms of like live, live stuff, bands trying to engage with the digital audience a little bit more just to get them in to watch. Cause you know, you're trying to, you're trying to interact with your audience in a different way. Cause you could sit there and play in front of the camera and the people, the, the audience could sit there in their living room and watch it. But if the band is talking to the people in the chat, you know, because One Step Closer was like actually, you know, reading the chat a little bit during the stream and it, and it made it fun. So, so were they using Switch? Is that how they were doing so it? We were, we were, we were, we actually were simultaneously streaming on Twitch, YouTube and Facebook. And I, I'm, I've, I've been able to um, use a way to have all the chats in, integrated is into one big room. Is this a homespun method or is this a secret way? No, I, I'm using, I'm using a service called Restream, Restream.io. So they're basically you send them one streaming signal and they're able to resend that out to like multiple social platforms and on their end they combine all the chat rooms into one. So wow, so just right now a band whether you're too small or maybe just starting out or maybe you just want to do it yourself, you don't need A56 on the East Coast or SOS booking on the West Coast. All you got to do is get on the Shopify thing and then connect to what was that website again the link that you were talking about yeah it's a restream.io yeah so you go ahead and you get the restream you get the shopify and boom you're in business for yourself kicking some ass doing a diy and you don't need nobody's help 
this is the kind of stuff that I love that Sonny knows, and he's willing to just impart wisdom-wise. Yeah, and I think right now it's the time to experiment because people are craving for any type of content or any type of digital interaction. So you, you DVDs maybe? DVD maybe maybe <laughs> DVDs. You know, we've been talking for over two hours now, and it's incredible to think about the fiscal investment without potential recoup value of the DVD, and now. 20 years later, minimal investment, and there's a real chance for bands to go out and make some money just doing something like a live stream or a pre-recorded live stream. It's incredible the way technology has moved us so quickly into these positions, whereas a band gets more DIY and thinking forward how they can really benefit from this new technology. So without live shows to shoot, what are you doing to make sure that the back run of videos that come out aren't going to go dry? Do you have a secret safe somewhere? Like, how long could 856 really go unless you start shooting some kind of videos? What's your plan and what's going on with the backlog? Yeah, great question. So I currently have enough videos edited and ready to go to be released every day through October. 2025. So, so cur- currently, currently, as a, as a, if I were to if I were to stop today, um, I have enough content ready to go until the end of October. So for the next like 45, 50 days, I think. Um, so that's stuff that I filmed over the last like year or two that's not hasn't been released. So, and again, that's all thanks to the voting system. Um, that's all posted automatically. So I I just kind of sit here and like. Well, do you have any plans post October? Or are you just hoping that things change for the better? So um, recently, Greg Falsetto, shout out to Greg, Greg from the Mongoloids. Um, he gave me a bunch of tapes. Yo, he's got this new band, uh, Youth, Youth Collapse. They were just on that oh, I didn't use, uh... Yeah, I mean, think about it. He's been in like two new bands in the last three years. Crazy for his work schedule. Shout out to Greg. Damn, I love that. Um, so yeah, he he actually filmed a lot of shows in the early two thousands. Um, a lot of Shadow Realm stuff with you on vocals. Um, yeah, poor kid, man. I mean, we took him all over the place. Yeah, yeah, and uh, he, inc- so incidentally, um, the first time I messaged you on Centerfuse was after one hundred eight played at uh, the ballroom, and. Uh, this is after Hellfest got canceled, and they got basically after Hellfest ca- canceled, all the bands were kind of like scrambling for shows, which was also the impetus and spark to start yeah. this arc. And so you put on the uh, 108 Lifetime show, and I no, we were just the security to help out Sean. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so Sean and Robbie, Rich Hall, and I think even Tim Bohr kind of all got together and took the cream of the crop and made some sick shows. Life and Lifetime Bounce Souls of the Truck, Turmoil Coalesce Church, 108 Champion Church, and then 108 and Lifetime at the Starlight Ballroom on that Got Saturday. So I remember I went because that was going to be my first time seeing 108, and I love 108. Was, was that at the church? Is that the one you hit? I, I couldn't make it to the church. So I made it to Starlight. Dude, the Starlight Ballroom was so friggin' hot. I thought people were going to die in that place. That <laughs> yeah, night. I remember that. So I... I was up front, and I remember getting crushed 
I was a yeah, skinny... there was absolutely no stage, and it was just three shallow steps, and people were like smashing on top of each other. That was a really mess. You're talking about Star- really Church of Starlight. Oh, it's oh, Starlight. Talking, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was getting crushed, and I remember this is before you and I ever talked. You, you like pushed someone, or you made room behind me. Like you, be, you basically cleared some area just so I wasn't getting crushed. And I remember like a couple days later, I messaged you on centerpiece and I just thanked you. I was like, Hey, thanks so much. Like I'm got, I'm a small guy. I was getting crushed. I was out of my element and I thanked you. And you were like, we, you you basically responded like we look out for our own. And I, and I really appreciated that. It made me feel welcome. But I remember I was standing in front of that, that, that the front row of that, of that show. And I looked on stage, stage left. And I saw this guy filming and I didn't know who it was at the time. And I was like, man, I, I got to see that footage. And I never fucking saw that footage for 15 years. Cause that was 2005. Yeah, that was uh, summer 2005. And I spent that ever since then, like, damn, someone's got that tape. And I remember hearing us, maybe maybe it was Greg who filmed it. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. And so finally, Greg hit me up at the beginning of COVID, maybe a little bit before. He's like, hey, I got all these tapes. Like, if you want them, I'd love to have you, like, clean them up. So he gave me, like, a couple dozen tapes. And in that collection is that 108 set. Is Whoa. it? So I finally have it. I've, I'm I'm starting. Yeah. Wow, Greg, Greg coming, coming through. through I haven't seen it. I don't know if he actually got the moment where you kind of like saved my life, and I'm hoping he's got that on there. Um, so he's given me tapes that I'm going to start working on. Um, everyone knows that I'm sitting on the Hellfest 2004 and 2001 stuff. Shout out to High Roller who gave me those tapes. Yeah, Doug, High Roller. Yo, man, that company was crazy. It's actually surreal to talk about it and think like, how they went from being another predecessor of yours to now you are taking on and finishing the work that those guys started. And I guess this is a good time to kind of say that you are an archivist and you do restore tapes. And I mean, I guess you're sort of like Indiana Jones and then also like those weird American pickers on TV when it comes to show videos. And this is a, solid time to kind of segue into you telling us just kind of how you do it how you get these people to send you the tapes what you're looking for etc etc it's both it's both so i'm constantly like indiana jonesing the shit out of stuff because i know there yeah yeah so i i there's there's stuff out there that i don't know exist i i think about i think about show videos as like an iceberg I got a bunch of tapes, but I'm going to let Bob Wilson and his friends see them. And more than likely, there's too much crazy shit on there for you to ever get your fucking hands on them. <laughs> That's awesome. So I, I think about this shit as like an iceberg. Like what what's above the surface is what we see on YouTube. But there, dude, there's, there's even more sitting in attics and basements on tapes. Because obviously, I'm not the first fucking person to do this. There were countless people shooting shows before me shooting hundreds of shows. And so there are gems. There are buried gems dating back to like the eighties, even if not before that of just like old punk shows and everything in between. So like every now and then I'll catch wind of someone who's sitting on some stuff. So are you spending the time reaching out on social media or do people just know that you're basically the guy who can get the job done? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So sometimes I'll put out a call asking for stuff, but then I get flooded with messages of stuff that I can't take for various reasons. So um, it's a combination of me, like, 
I'll catch wind of someone having something. And a lot of people are protective of their recordings for obvious reasons because it's like their one thing that they have that no one else has. But they're holding on to a piece of physical media that's going to disintegrate after some time that is not going to be playable. And for me, like these recordings are these these recordings are paramount. These are like the only times that some of these there are history and it's the only times that maybe this that one song is played live or the first time that song that song was played live or whatever it is. So if, well, that's the importance of going to the shows because you never know what's going to happen. So it's imperative that this stuff is digitized before it's gone forever before this tapes like physically disintegrate. So what is the oldest tape or thing that you have come across yet? I think I have some stuff from like 89, 90. Wow. I mean, if you go on YouTube, you can see some shows, like clips of shows from like the Psychos and the Faith from A7. But it's incredible to me that someone was walking around with some giant ass camera in the 1980s uh, just getting some videos of bands that were probably playing in front of like, what, 25 people. Um, what is the process for seeking some of this more archaic, ancient shit out? Like, do you have a whole formula you follow? Yeah, so I'll, I'll catch wind of something that's out there. And there's, there's a bit of social engineering that needs to be done because I can't always just reach out to the person being like, hey, I run 856, I'd love to clean it up and post it. Because sometimes these people are super protective. So it's a little bit of a long game. For some of these people, I need to enlist their friends or become friends with Wait, their acquaintances. That's crazy, man. Are the, are these people like hermits, just like holding on to holy relics of hardcore videos? Yeah, and so I'll, I'll wait, wait. I this is just way further and deep than I thought. Yes, yeah, so there there have been times where I've had to enlist their friends to to kind of put pressure on them to get it sent to me to actually <laughs> clean up. So you gotta pressure them. You gotta give an offer they can't refuse. Uh, I can't. I can't. There's there's certain secrets I can't reveal. I, I can't reveal. <laughs> so, I'm gonna put out a call to any of you weird, hardcore hermits or people with just milk crates or old boxes of tapes. Send them to Sunny. The Hate Five Six coffers are running dry. Young kids like Bob Wilson, Kevin Hare, and Carter need old '90s videos and old 80s videos so they can try to mosh and emulate like them and Sonny is the best at restoring and preserving hardcore history so send him your stuff so I will directly. say I will say before I get flooded with messages um, there is some criteria with what I take because I'm is it is there like a format like VHS no, 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 or no, no, no. For, for me I'm a purist so I really I I give strong precedent to stuff that has never been digitized before, because like there's stuff that there's stuff out there that's been already uploaded before, like Gorilla Biscuits playing at this venue, like that. So, what is the criteria that you're looking for? To I want do something this? that's never been seen, and I would strongly prefer to work with the master copy, the original copy. I don't want something that's been copied ten times over and given. Oh, yeah, that's like every tape I had before I was even 18 years old. And I mean, I know so many people with tapes that are just like copies yeah. of a copy of a copy. So what do you do or how do you know if there are um, master tapes? It's hard, tapes? but 
if you're skilled enough, you can actually tell what the generation. Of course, you would be the kind of person that would have so those skills. I, I, I strongly prefer stuff that's been um, not been posted before. If I, I prefer stuff that we're at where we can track down the master tape. And it needs to be sufficiently old enough. Like, I don't want something that someone filmed, like, two years ago. So it needs to be, like, kind of old, and it's going to be worthwhile. So as of right now, like, I'm pretty picky with my submissions because, truth be told, I have enough tapes. of like, I have enough, like, tapes that I can be digitizing and editing to last me through spring of 2021. So you got yourself a whole stockpile. So I'm Holy really crap. trying to maintain my new vid- one-video-a-day streak for the next at least six, eight months if I can. So, so another thing we're talking about uh, with COVID going on, have you seen a drop in the people that support you via the Patreon? Or has the fan base been loyal and sticking with you despite the pandemic? I'll be honest, I've been afraid to look at the numbers. Um, the first two months, the numbers were stable. Like, it, it stabilized. It, ha- it didn't dip. And I got feedback from my patrons saying, like, hey, we're, we're willing to support you no matter what. But the longer that this goes on, I know that the longer people are going to be out of work, the less they're going to have for disposable income. And that means they're going to have to cut back on supporting things like my Patreon. So I've been actually very afraid to look at my numbers recently uh, out of fear that it's, that it's dropped precipitously. And I, I don't think it has, but... I'm just uh, very anxious about looking at it. So I've been doing things like, you know, I'm trying to do more of these live streams. Like I want to do like one free one or two free live streams a month, whether it's, you know, like that one step closer one I did, we did um, after the stream, we did some bonus content, which was a, um, like they they did a special encore song and then also like a rig rundown interview with me. Like basically, basically a free live stream with a 20 minute exclusive content. And I'm basically putting that up on my Patreon for like the $2 tier. So I'm hoping that by producing some of that stuff per month, I'll be able to like retain some people. Um, it's obviously I'm not going to be able to film as much stuff as I was during COVID, but, but, but between doing the live stream bonus content and also making some of like the uh, archival tapes available for early viewing on Patreon. I'm hoping to maintain like the, like the, the stability of, of the platform because honestly this thing, this whole thing could tank and I'm going to have to go back to working in tech, which if it happens, it happens like literally a Facebook recruiter emailed me a week ago asking if I wanted to interview. And I said, I literally told him, I was like, Hey, I'm good right now, but the longer this goes on, I might, I might have to <laughs> interview with you in, in a couple of months, but knock on wood. Nah, nah, nah. You'll be good, man. You'll be good. I mean, if you think about COVID and all the different things that you did and we just talked about, it's pretty crazy to think that at a time when live shows have stopped and a lot of band people are scratching their head for things to do, you've managed to do so much. And just in this last two hours and something i feel lazy compared to the shit you've managed to do just in the last six months so don't give up yet and for people listening you can go to his patreon and support someone who puts everything he can back into hardcore back into our culture preserving the uh preserving it archiving it and also you know capturing it live and preserving it in the present for our future. 
So, besides that, what else you got going on these days, Sonny? Yeah, I saw a video that you posted about um, Mike yes, African Man. That was insane. I'm trying to do some of my own independent live streams. Yeah, he was an incredible orator. Um, and like I said, I bought this 3D printer, so I'm learning how to like, print up um, some that various contraptions for my camera. just commands presence when he speaks, and I was totally blown away. But what he had to say, and the way that he said it, the mannerisms, it's like watching somebody who has put a lot of thought into this, and it was incredible. Like you're watching history taking place, listen to him, and what he has to say. And it's awesome that you're using your platform to give him a voice that he may not have to so many people since your reach is so far with all your different platforms. It's also important to note that being a person who subscribes to the philosophies and the teachings of hardcore punk that you are giving people a voice and fighting for the people of the streets and a lot of times in our community people just want to turn their heads put their headphones on and zone out but it's time that people wake yeah, up and, and they're going to listen to what's community. going on out like, there like hardcore is a community we we lift each other up and I I also exist in the Philadelphia community and what's happening in this community is important to also support. So like I like I touched on earlier, for me what Hate Five Six is is this bullhorn where I'm just I'm I'm producing this content and the content is made to signal boost whatever it is, whether it's the band playing in a basement or a band playing a big stage, it's to get eyes and ears on whatever it is that my camera was fucking pointing at. So I'm I've and this isn't new. I've I've always used hate five six as a platform to elevate marginalized voices whether it's like not just black lives matter movement but also like indigenous struggles as well so i've 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 gone to um every every thanksgiving i've for the last oh god fuck almost 10 years now i spent every thanksgiving going up to plymouth um for the National Day of Mourning, which is this annual event that's, that's been happening for the last 50 years. In Plymouth, Massachusetts? In Plymouth, which is where, like, the pilgrims supposedly landed. And so it's a day of uh, remembrance and um, reflection where um, people gather. And it's it's a day where only indigenous people speak about uh, their history and also things that they are still struggling with today because their strife has not ended. It's just taken on different forms. Obviously, like what happened with the Dakota Access Pipeline is the most recent thing on people's minds. Um, so there's, it's a day of reflection. And uh, I, I go every year to center myself because I think it's important for me to uh, take a step back and listen to what they have to say um, as the First Nations people. And um, I use it as a time to also document what they're saying and, and, to, and to push it out. So I've been filming a lot of the speeches for the last... 10 plus years. Um, last year, I actually live streamed it for the first time um, on Twitch. And this year, I don't know if it's going to happen because of COVID, but this year is supposed to be, I want to say the, f this year is um, Plymouth is doing a big, they have a replica of the fucking Mayflower compact and they're, they're supposed to do a massive thing for it. 
And so I don't know if it's still happening because of what's what's been going on, but supposedly it's going to draw a lot of people. Um, and I suspect that there might be some counter protests as well, obviously. So, um, I, I mean, say- there's going to be some lonely, angry people out there with the MAGA hats screaming and yelling and just being ignorant just because nobody wants to hear their fucking bullshit when they just want to eat turkey. So I wouldn't even be surprised if they're out there because the way the cult is, who the fuck wants to be around them all day when it's supposed to be a day of hanging out, eating food, and chilling with your family? Oh, no, no, no. What, so what, I, what I'm saying is that people are going to be going to celebrate this Mayflower Compact. Well, no. Well, so... Well, so actually, so, so, so at, at last year's um, day of mourning, I actually got some of this on film. Like we were, every every day of mourning begins with a um, with a um, a prayer. That's not. Was that ever something that you put on Instagram? I thought I saw something like that a couple of years back. Uh, looking at your feed from that whole thing. Yeah, so it's a it's a prayer that. Um, you know, you, you pray to the four corners and uh, you're, you're no one's supposed to film it. So if I Instagram live that, that live that, that must have been a couple of years ago before I was. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, you're not supposed to film it or anything. So I'm very respectful of, of that now. Um, but I remember in the last couple of years, like there were people who'd come up like there was one year where someone came up dressed up as a fucking pilgrim in an Indian and was just like heckling people during the spiritual ceremony. And the la- yeah, I mean. And then last- That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. I mean, again, this is Thanksgiving. If you got somewhere to be, and last year there was a guy in a MAGA hat that just like disrupted the whole thing, and and what's 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 really disheartening is that a lot of the elder, I mean, there are elder indigenous people there who are um, they either speak or they're just present. A lot of them are actually like military veterans. And they're wearing their Vietnam like veteran hats and things like that, and they're they 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 are they are among the people like who have ever right to not serve this country for what this country has done to their ancestors. Well, I mean, you gotta consider the source. Um, the MAGA cult doesn't really pay attention to history. Their whole thing is they're right, everybody else is wrong. Fuck you. And it's a disgrace for them to push the support your troops gimmick while still pushing out such virtual hate towards actual veterans of our country's armed forces, especially on Thanksgiving, which is just a whole nother mess. But I mean, what can you expect by somebody who has no family? So they're out in the middle of the street yelling and being a dickhead to every other yeah. person. Yeah. So out th- there's there. been stuff like that, but largely it's been it's been very positive in the last couple of years. Um, well, for me, I just once again, on top of all the things that you do year round, it's impressive to see you take a step away from a day which a lot of people don't use as a holy day as much as they use as a way to reconnect with family and share a meal. And you're out there toiling for marginalized people. And it's just something that you don't see too often in this modern world of selfishness and gimme, gimme, gimme is really thinking of other people. Unless, of course, it's for the virtual signaling and 
for the brownie points of performative efforts and you've been doing this for so long that I just think it's cool that you're out there freezing your ass off in Massachusetts just to support these people. I appreciate that. I mean, yeah. So for me, it's just constantly about elevating voices and just documenting because really what I'm doing, I'm documenting a time and place, whether it's a show or political movement, like I'm just documenting what's happening around me. You know what I mean? And, uh, I'm actually surprised that no one has reached out or pushed you in some kind of way to shoot a documentary. Have you ever given thought to that or what's been stopping you? That's a good you? question. So I, I'm constantly asked about doing hardcore documentaries and I don't know. No, don't I, do I it. I feel like, yeah, no. I, that's, that's my reaction. We don't need any more videos where people are talking about back in my day and yeah, blah, blah, so... blah. If you're doing something, you got to do something politically charged yeah. and something that you're going to be comfortable with, especially if it's something speaking for your community or things that you're actually physically engaged with. Yeah, so with. actually, so today I, I spent some time at... Um, the encampment, the home, the houseless encampment near the art museum, because um, in Philadelphia, yeah. So the city's planning on uh, sweeping and evicting the camp soon. So I spent this morning interviewing a lot of the the folks down there who are living there about their experience and things like that. So I'm I've been I've been brought on to work on um, a project that's centered around the housing crisis because there's a lot of actually there's actually a lot of vacant homes in Philly and the Philadelphia. I mean, they've been letting homes fall apart and get vacant for as long as I've been alive. And I've always believed that it's in hopes of filling those houses with people from outside of Philadelphia. And I've always wondered, what are they gonna do for the real Philadelphians? The people that lived here and bled here and families have been here for generations are getting pushed out. Just so New Yorkers who don't wanna spend $800,000 on a row home We'll spend four hundred thousand dollars on one. Yeah, so some some of the people who are because uh, like I said, I've been covering the Black Lives Matter protests since um, I mean for for a while now, but obviously it's heated up this summer. Um, a couple of the organizers with that are working on a project that's centered on what's happening with the housing crisis because the Philadelphia Housing Authority actually owns a lot of these vacant houses and they're not putting people in them, and that their job is to put these houseless folks in them, and they're not doing it. So. We're trying to just shed some light on that. And so some of the people who have... I mean, it's either ignorance or it's negligence. It's negligence. I, I, I don't... Es especially within the Philadelphia city bureaucracy, there's a lot of nepotism and there's a lot of people who aren't really going to do their jobs for anybody in the city unless there's some fiscal reward or benefit for them in yeah. the end of them just doing so their job. So a couple of the people who are... Um, you know, I've... I've a couple of people who are heavily involved with the BLM movement here are tied to that. So they reached out to me saying like, hey, we see you at the protest. We've seen a lot of the work that you've been doing. We'd love to help have you help. So I've been trying to make my skills and resources available to them um, for whatever their needs. So are you working towards a documentary for them? Kind of. Uh, it's still TBD what that is. Um, but so, so Mike Africa, he and I are working on a couple things. Um, so right now there's a big push to, um, get Mumia Abu-Jamal out of prison. So there was a, uh, court ruling in the last two years, basically saying that he has the right to appeal, uh, due, due to prosecutorial and, and judicial misconduct in his case. Um, and basically he had the right to appeal and then 
there's there's something called the king's bench decision which is basically stalling that entire process and so, so um, um like what is that exactly are they trying to get him back on death row or what's their angle with the bench decision it's basically it's like slowing it down um basically they're trying to remove certain people from the case that's they're trying to re- the 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 people who are trying to keep Mumia in prison are trying to are trying to prevent certain people from staying on the case more or less with this decision. Um, so, obviously, so Mike Africa and the entire move move organization have been trying to get Mumia out for decades now, and so there has been a um, there's a effort right now to uh, have the street that Mumia grew up on, um, which is Seventh and Wallace, which is just north of the uh, electric factory. Um, so there is a uh, there is a effort going on right now to actually rename the street to Mumia Abu Jamal Way, and so um, Mike is working on getting signatures for that. So we spent the last couple of weeks actually in the neighborhood, um, giving out water ice uh, to people, and I've, I've been filming it with him. So basically filming him and giving water ice, and neighbors coming up saying, "Oh, you know, what's what's this all about?" and then telling them about the what's going on with renaming the street, and it's it's been a very amazing experience because a lot of the people who are on that street are have been living there since the 60s if not longer so we've had people come up for water ice and they're just like oh i grew up with mubia we were we were kids growing up we we ran down this corner we did this like i know him like and they're telling stories about him as a person and i wasn't expecting this i was just expecting have you ever written him or anything I, like that? I haven't no not yet but i i think that um the longer that I work with Mike on some of this stuff, the, the, the sooner it is I'll probably get to have some level. Man, of that'll be like a crazy, awesome moment for you if that I, happens. I think so, yeah. Because I've been following that case. I mean, I've known about the case ever since I was a little kid growing up in the... I grew up in New Jersey, but that's such a nationally, internationally known case. And, like, everyone in Philly... Oh, not, I don't know if everyone in Philly knows about it, but, like, you know... I mean, growing up, we had people that lived right near where his... Um, where Marie and Faulkner had lived. And that neighborhood was obviously very much anti-Mamiya. But then other places where I lived, you would see people wearing shirts and constantly pushing to have him taken off death row, which I think he now is. It's just after 40 years, there's enough scrutiny under the case, the way the prosecutors handle things, and it just looks bad for the city to ever just admit that they did him wrong. So they're trying to fight and hold out. But it's ridiculous that he is still going through all these legal troubles. And that's been the span of my entire life. And I just do not understand the purpose of keeping one person inside when multiple times, multiple things have been struck down and making the case against them look weaker and weaker as but, the years I think go. What, so obviously they're trying to raise awareness by renaming the street after him. But I think what Mike Africa Jr. understands, and actually what Move understands very well, is the idea of creating pressure and putting pressure and creating creating pressure points on, like, within the system, whether it's. Well, I also think that the new generation of Philadelphians and their push towards progression versus the old Rizzo era, you're going to see a new wave of support to get Mamiya and other people who have been 
wrongly prosecuted and wrongly imprisoned or wrongly sentenced, um, their, their cases are going to be put out into the light and hopefully there'll be some justice that isn't uh, what we had seen over the last 30 years from the city. Yeah, I agree. And I think that um, even if the street renaming doesn't win or if it doesn't go through, I think that's going to generate enough attention around... I mean, this thing's been going on for yeah, far too and fucking I think, long. I mean, they got Meek Mill out, uh, and he was out I, on probation. Yeah, it's well, crazy. And, and so Meek was actually starting to advocate for him, but then he he backed out. He started backing out. I think he was getting getting pressure to not touch the case. So Meek was starting to advocate for me in the last couple of years, and then he, yeah. I don't know where the pressure was coming from, but he kind of uh, backed out of that. But um, I do think that, yeah, I think that there's – and, and, and again, this goes this goes back to what we were talking about in terms of like trolls on a Instagram post creating viral content. Like even if the street renaming fails, like Mike and Move are still creating this pressure point of just like agitating the city to like acknowledge Mumia as a as the native son of Philadelphia by renaming the street after him. So even if it doesn't pass, like it's going to generate so much buzz and like the windfall, like you said, that people are going to become aware of the case just from the notoriety of the attempt to even rename the street after him. So no, I, I agree. And I think that it's amazingly circular that once again, you're using your camera, you're using the social media platforms and your drive and your knowledge of the algorithms to kind of push this in a whole new direction in the social justice for someone as worldwide known as Mamiya. It's just absolutely incredible that you have the time to do all this and still function as a normal human being. So what's left? You just got some filming that you're doing with Mike and you guys are working on special projects. Like, how's the rest of that heading out for you? So, yeah, I've been collecting a lot of that footage and just sitting on it. And then um, I can't speak about it yet, but I'm working on, potentially working on a very major project, documentary project with Mike Africa. Um, he and I got to work out some schedule. I actually need to figure out the scheduling for recording this as hardcore sets because he's waiting on me to give him, give him some days of my availability because my bad, Mike. Yeah, so I, I, I'm hoping to have some news about that, but that will pro if that actually happens, that will probably be the biggest thing today I will ever be involved in. So that's all I can say. Right wow, man, that's a cliffhanger. Okay. What's your uh, social? I am at hate five six. The word hate, the number five, the word six on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. My website is hate five six dot com. Um, you can reach out to me pretty much. I kind of have DMs turned off on a lot of places, but if you if you if you really need to reach me, you'll find you'll find you'll find out which one is the one <laughs> to actually contact me. Um, if you want to support the work that I'm doing, it's uh, patreon.com dot com slash hate five six. There's also a merch store hate five six dot com slash store. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much all I got. Man, thank you for the story. And it's incredible all the work that you're putting in. And Hardcore and the world at large owes you a debt of gratitude for all your energy, positive and negative, put together. And I mean, you're just one of these creative forces and just innovative and a really good friend of mine. And I'm just very happy that we kind of get a look under the hood and inside your brain of all the crazy shit that you're up to. So thank you so much, Sonny. Take care. No, just shout out to anyone who's been listening. Shout out to my mom and dad who are <laughs> the best uh, for raising me. 
instilling me with important values um, and backing me, even though they were concerned about the choices I made in life. But I think they understand that uh, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the child in the family that's been always wanting to choose his own path. And I think that they've, yeah. So I shout out to mom and dad. I love you. Thank you so much for everything. Likewise, brother. I love you so much. All right, bye.